always online at byuradio.org slash top of mind. If you missed any programs, you can always find them there or you can listen live. I'm producer Tenery Taylor in for Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. This has been a repeat broadcast of Top of Mind, recorded previously. BYU Radio. So you Listen to Highway 89 weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Get a daily dose of Cougar sports with BYU Sports Nation every weekday at 12 p.m. Eastern right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I discovered kind of the hidden secret to happiness because the reality is I knew now knew that the I will be happy when I will be successful when when I have this win was never going to happen for me. There's a secret to happiness. Discover what it is with Cool Humans on the Kim Power Stilson Show. But create habits that help you be what you want to be. Listen, weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. Talk about good. 80% of streams sampled by the USGS are contaminated with at least one organic chemical. But one young scientist is working to solve this problem. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories behind the ideas that shape our future. When a sixth grader learned the Everglades were contaminated with pharmaceuticals, she decided to do something about it. Maria Grimmett set up labs in her parents' garage and dining room, and for the next six years, relentlessly tackled the problem. She began experimenting with polymer resins she believed could be used to trap certain contaminants. For her studies, Maria chose a common animal antibiotic, More than 400 tons of sulfamethazine are used each year to protect livestock from disease. But 90% of the drug is not metabolized by the animals and ends up in our water. In her tests, Maria discovered that the drug particles actually attach themselves to tiny gaps in the resin beads, effectively removing the contaminants from the water. Although she realizes the drug in her study is only one of more than 95 common contaminants, Maria hopes water engineers will take notice and begin using resins in the real world. For Innovation Now, I'm Jennifer Pulley. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. Hello, I'm Sue Montgomery with the BBC News. The former Olympic athlete Oscar Pistorius has appeared in court in South Africa without his prosthetic legs during a hearing to determine his sentence for murder. The double amputee walked on his stumps as his lawyer recounted the night three years ago that he shot dead his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp. Ms. Steenkamp's cousin, Kim Martin, said Mr. Pistorius had changed his story too many times. All we've ever wanted is the truth. And I know people said, but you got the truth, but we didn't. Oscar's version changed so many times. And I never, ever heard him saying that I apologize for shooting and murdering Reva behind that door. Um, I don't feel there was an apology from him. I don't feel the true version came out. We just wanted the truth. That's what we wanted. 
China has lodged a formal complaint with the United States ahead of a planned meeting between President Obama and the Dalai Lama. More from Celia Hatton. China's protests were strongly worded and aimed directly at the White House. The Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Liu Kang said the meeting later today would send the wrong message to separatist forces pushing for Tibetan independence. A day earlier, Mr. Kong had accused the Dalai Lama of using a cloak of religion to peddle his political ambition to divide China. Beijing wants all governments to refuse meetings with the Buddhist spiritual leader. The Obama administration is not falling into line with that request. Security has been stepped up in the French city of Lille ahead of Russia's game, which is due to start about now against Slovakia in the Euro 2016 football tournament. The French police have detained four Russian football fans for questioning. Russia's foreign minister Sergei Lavrov says Russian fans had been provoked in the game against England in Marseille. President François Hollande has led a minute silence honoring a senior police commander and his partner who were killed in what the authorities have called a terrorist attack. They were stabbed to death on Monday at their home outside Paris. The authorities in the Netherlands have been giving details of how one of their navy ships rescued nearly 200 migrants from their sinking boat in the Mediterranean Sea. The operation took place on Tuesday between Egypt and the Italian island of Sicily. Anna Holligan has more details. Images released by the Dutch Ministry of Defence show a rescue worker wearing a white plastic suit, clutching a young child, a deck packed full of men wrapped in blue blankets, and a pregnant woman, exhausted, clinging onto a man in army fatigues. The Dutch crew are part of the Frontex border surveillance operation designed to control the flow of people entering Europe. The 193 migrants have been given food, water, and medical care, and are being taken to an Italian port. World news from the BBC. A judge in Uganda has ruled that the opposition leader Kisa Besigye should be tried for treason in court and not at the maximum security prison where he is currently being held. State prosecutors had asked for the case to be heard in jail, citing security concerns. Mr. Besigye, who declared himself the winner of February's elections, was arrested in Kampala last month. The second in line to the British throne, Prince William, has appeared on the front cover of a gay magazine to speak out against bullying of people because of their sexuality. He told the magazine Attitude that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people should be proud of the person they are. Here's Peter Hunt. Prince William is destined to be the future head of state of the UK and 15 other countries, some of which discriminate against gay people. The future king has supported campaigns against bullying and the work being done to remove the stigma surrounding mental health. When the prince met some young gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals, he learned how bullying can lead to eating disorders and suicide attempts. William told the gay magazine Attitude that no one should be bullied for their sexuality or for any other reason. The security forces in Jammu, in Indian-administered Kashmir, have imposed a curfew after clashes between police and protesters. Demonstrators in the Hindu-majority city were angry about the alleged desecration of a local temple by a Muslim man on Tuesday. 
A shortage of avocados following a poor growing season has triggered an unusual crime wave in New Zealand. Police say opportunistic thieves with an eye for a quick dollar are behind a big increase in raids on avocado orchards. Carloads of the fruit are said to be going missing in the country's North Island, with up to 40 such thefts so far this year. Increased international demand and a shortage of supplies has resulted in the price of the fruit soaring to more than four US dollars in some supermarkets. BBC News. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Hop of the morning to you. Happy days, folks. Happy days are here again. <sighs> Welcome to the program. we got a great show for you. Men have a lot to talk about and some interesting, very interesting, uh, very interesting guests for you coming up. You may have heard about uh, the entire, uh, the Gawker, I don't know how you, what you call it, the Gawker media lawsuit with Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan wins a $140 million suit with the help of PayPal's, uh, you know, owners or uh, founders, two bill. You put $2 billion. $10 million. Yeah, but yeah, but $2 billion man. Yes. Invest $10 million His name's Peter Thiel. To destroy Gawker. They win a lawsuit, $140 million. Gawker now is in bankruptcy. What happened to freedom of the press? And are these uh, are these lawsuits, especially lawsuits that are backed by second party um, kind of backers, financiers? Is that is that moral? Is that ethical? It's legal. It's totally legal. We're going to be talking about it with Dr. Clay Calvert about uh, you know the ability to shut the media up by just suing them into oblivion and the impact of that. So we'll be getting to that. It's interesting, especially as you hear more and more people claiming and and not liking the media. And with a weird kind of stretching as to what um, what constitutes media. You know, it used to be no. you were a journalist, but now you could just be, uh, you know, it's TMZ journalism. They break a lot of stories. They, they had a the, lot uh, of stories. the death of Nancy Reagan before her family knew. Yeah. So, I I well I mean there's Journalism. there's that and then TMZ puts that alongside you know some guy with a phone on a sidewalk in California just talking to somebody right and then hey you're well, in a movie what color do you like you know those kind of questions <laughs> <laughs> well that's the big point in the end here is uh, journalism is it is it sliding anyway so what First Amendment rights do they have and can we now sue people out of First Amendment rights. So are we going to start beating people up in the courts to control what the media say or they don't say? So we'll get to that. Uh, also, of course, um, we're going to show you a lot of video on the show today. Mm. A, a lot of people question, why would you show video on a radio show? I, I'm one of them. But yeah, the, you're one okay. of them. But you obviously are starting to understand there's power in visuals, on even an, when it's on the radio. On an audio medium, but that's fine. Yeah. Uh-huh. By the way, today is Smile Power Day. 
Hmm. Smile Power Day is the perfect excuse to shine your pearly whites and show off those dimples. Hmm. Show so, those dimples off, Terry. Maybe show, not. Show your pearly know. whites. Uh, and again, nothing says or sounds m- like smile more than this. Why is that smile? Well, doesn't it seem obvious? Okay. Doesn't that sound like an angel just playing its harp, his harp up in heaven while somebody smiles? Okay. Um, Lots of smiles in heaven. All right. Okay. Uh, it's also fly a kite day. We don't, have, we don't have sound for that. Not even the song, Let's Go Fly a Kite or something. There we go. Of course we do. Mm. Makes me smile. There's a park by my house. Yeah. They do kite fighting. Ooh, it's kind of fun. You sit there and watch them. They're they're swinging around trying to cut each other's lines as they're flying their kites. <laughs> do they really? Yeah. Well, that's just. That's going to ruin the day. Aggressive kite flying. But the minute you tangle your strings, you're done, aren't you? Well, you know, they're good at what they're doing. So they avoid that, but they try to come through they, and like just slice the line other, yeah. so that their kite falls and How you win. fun. Yeah. Or they have like the huge, like ornate, really yeah. complicated looking kites. We used to call fun. those guys bullies. Well, no, everyone's... Everyone's doing it. It's all it's competition. So there's not like some little kid, Timmy. Yeah, there's Timmy's no, not out flying a kite, and then some guy comes in and yeah. cuts his strings. Some jerk comes over, points at him, in your face, then <laughs> runs away. No, that's not that. Boy, that's a tough park you live by. Yeah, well... Um, let's get to the headlines with Terry South, find out what else is going on around the world. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Sad news this morning. A search is on for a toddler dragged into the water by an alligator near Disney's Grand Floridian Resort and Spa near Disney World. Sheriff spokeswoman Rosa Silva said the two-year-old child was dragged into the Seven Seas Lagoon around 9.30 p.m. And deputies are combing the water for any sign of the child. It's not clear if the unidentified toddler was staying at the hotel. The Orlando Sentinel reports officials are using sonar, marine units, and an alligator trapper. They do not plan to stop searching until... The toddlers found the Nebraska family was relaxing on the shoreline when the alligator attacked. In other news, Hillary Clinton has won the District of Columbia Democratic primary, the last primary contest of the election season, with 99% of precincts reporting. Clinton had 90 or 79% of the vote compared to Bernie Sanders with 21. The pair met Tuesday night. Clinton telling Telemundo the conversation was wide-ranging because they share a lot of, of the same goals. So we'll yeah. see what comes out of that. Bernie Sanders set to have a video conference call with supporters on Thursday to talk about the path forward. Oh, boy. Slash drop out and endorse Hillary. I got to get out of here. See what happens. They're really closing in on me. In a new Bloomberg poll conducted between June 10th and June 13th, Hillary Clinton leads Donald Trump 49% to 37%, while Libertarian Party candidate Gary Johnson earned 9% of the vote. He needs 15% of the vote. In, Gary, in so many Gary. national polls to get into the debate. He's got to get up there. He's got to get man. up there. Clinton has been trending upwards in recent poll matchups after consolidating the Democratic nomination. In this new poll, 55% of those surveyed said they will never vote for Trump. 63% of women surveyed they would never vote for Trump. Of those surveyed, 45% are also bothered by the lawsuits against Trump University. Really? 
So we'll see where that goes as that case continues. Russian government hackers reportedly broke into the Democratic National Committee's computer network sometime in in the last year and gained access to the group's internal communications and databases. The hack, according to security experts and DNC officials, specifically targeted opposition research on Donald Trump which NBC reports could provide Russian material in seeking to embarrass or apply pressure to specific targets. Yeah. The DNC was first notified by the hack uh, by the FBI. The hackers also reportedly attempted to penetrate the White House, the State Department, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Isn't Donald really good friends with Putin? I don't know if there's any relationship he's he's uh said positive things about him and then trump has returned said positive things i don't think they've ever met trump said that he met him once because they were on 60 minutes together but if you watch the episode they're two recorded pieces it's not like there's a green room and they're hanging out well maybe maybe their videos met trump was in new york having the interview and and putin was in russia so it wasn't like they (laughs) they hung out and ate m&ms or something so um it's what you do in the green room is that what you do in the green room that's what i was told yeah. Not in our green room. Yeah. Our green room, you just listen we, to us and drink bottled water. Do we have a green room? It's yeah. sort of a lobby area. It's, okay. But it's green. Yeah. And it's a room, so it meets the there's, criteria. There's some couches. Okay. It's where we hold our meetings. We have team meetings. We hold them in the green room area, and uh, we hold them weekly. Haven't seen you there ever. Really? I, I haven't gotten the invite. You were right. disinvited. Yeah. Oh, really? So. Legally. Why would you tell me you that? There. Finally, one last story tying into our next guest. In a letter sent last week to Gawker on behalf of the hair treatment clinic Charles L. Harder, who was representing Mr. Hulk Hogan in his lawsuit, the retired wrestler, and an invasion of privacy lawsuit against Gawker. uh, So the Trump or Mr. Hogan's lawyer sent a letter letter to Gawker on behalf of the hair clinic that I told you about with with Donald Trump. Yeah, okay, yeah. They were saying he had a $60,000 hair piece. Right. That it was somehow clamped or stapled or secured to his skull. Some sort of weave going on. That hair treatment is suing Gawker, saying that uh, what they're saying is completely wrong and they've mischaracterized the company, and so now there's this lawsuit involving Gawker and Donald Trump. See, again, one of these third-party lawsuits backed by somebody. The letter continues a legal battle between Mr. Harder and Gawker. His Los Angeles-based law firm was thrust into the spotlight last month when it was revealed that Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel was secretly providing financial support for lawsuits against Gawker. So this law firm in California, the billionaire is using the law firm. The law firm sues Gawker, and now they have more cases coming forward. And the billionaire is angry because he he was allegedly outed as a gay man uh, by Gawker. And that was problematic for him because he was trying to do some uh, financial deals with, say, Saudi Arabia. Right, and they're and not... They, they're they not, won't have that. They don't like uh, that lifestyle, so they're not going to deal with him on the same level that he... It made his business more difficult, right. so that's why he sued. Ah, crazy, crazy world. And then if, if we wanted to spend hours, we could spend hours talking about Trump and President Obama going back and forth... You know, obviously, Trump, um, Obama doesn't like Trump. No. But Obama, President Obama is the sitting president of the United States. You just, you don't always have to comment, you know. He, he maybe shouldn't comment. But Trump made an interesting point that he seems mad, more mad at me than he does the shooter. I mean, where does this end? Where does this end? Where, President Obama asked that question. Where does this end? It's 
that's the problem. Because you, you it started... doesn't end the minute you respond. No. So just let's just take the high road. Go lead the country. Stay out of the fray. Let Hillary take on Donald. But he said he can't wait to get into the fight. I know. He's been waiting. Ah. Mm. We did find something really powerful yesterday that we failed to mention. Um, it was Donald's birthday. Was it yesterday? Yes. He's Donald 70 turned years old. 70 years old. The big 7-0, which today is like 60. Apparently. Uh, 70 is the new 60. And Donald had a, had a birthday song from um, a group of they, – they didn't seem – were they, I guess, supporters from India? Yeah. Or, they're, or, they're characterized as kind of right-leaning, nationalistic Indian political group. Okay. If well, that, that makes any sense. That makes sense. So here is, here is this group singing Donald Happy Birthday. Okay, see? Happy birthday. And as they're doing this, there's a huge photograph of Donald Trump, and they're holding a piece of cake up to his mouth. And I think they actually took the cake and, like, fed it to the picture. I really do believe they did that. And But we had found some audio, and so I'm not sure that this was a real event. I'm wondering if Donald put this together, because we found some audio that I think was, like, from the 60s, Mm. 70s probably. Probably the 70s. 70s, um, of of a similar chant. Mm. Um, that was very popular back in the 70s. Bring out your date! Hmm. I can't tell if it's the same one. But there's a certain sort of cadence that's yeah. the same. Bring out your date! There's a pattern yeah. there. Yeah. And so I think if you just sped it up a little bit, it would sound like this other one. Hmm. Anyway. Let's, in fact, let's test it. Uh, play the other one now. and just Maybe the other one's just a little faster. And in the end, it's it's probably it's it's the same thing, but they're not saying Donald's dead. No. Our magician Ben is. Very similar. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an FBI agent that yeah, is yeah. a professional at this, but it's the same thing. Hmm. We need to get some sort of forensics audio investigator on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bring out your dead. Yeah. Happy birthday. It's interesting it's the how they, they they almost match up. Oh, uh, yeah. Huh. It's, it's... You, you watch it on TV where they'll take a voice print of, of one person saying something here and yeah. here and then match it up and they go, it's the same person. That is Even same. though you can't really do that, mm. but they do it on TV. But when you've so. got an ear like mine mm. – um, you can hear things. Do you have like bionic hearing? Uh-huh. Mm. Except for when I'm stuffed up. Okay. When I'm congested, yeah. can't hear a thing. Hmm. But, which isn't bad. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just don't want to hear things. No, really. And then, yeah, because when I pop my ears and I can hear again, I'm like, ugh, I should have left myself congested. <laughs> These kids are making a lot of noise out there. So, um, again, uh, great show. We're going to be delving into this idea of uh, first – Amendment, freedom of press rights, and then what happens when you can sue an organization, a press organization, a media organization into oblivion? So if I have a billion dollars and the media is saying something I don't like about me, I'll just shut them down by suing them. Is that the way this should work? 
Should a third party be able to inject itself into an argument, uh, even to the point of sending another organization, another business, into uh, bankruptcy? And I guess it's one thing if you don't like the organization, but what if it's happening to a, a, a pretty healthy, productive press company? Does that matter? We'll be talking about it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, just a few weeks ago, news broke of PayPal co-founder Peter Till funding wrestling, uh, if you remember, wrestler Hulk Hogan's privacy lawsuit against the online media outlet Gawker. And uh, Till's personal vendetta stems from a 2007 report from Gawker publicly outing him as gay. And with his personal ties to an already $140 million case, questions regarding third-party finance litigation and free press laws have come to light. Um, And joining us today, we have Dr. Clay Calvert. He's a professor at the University of Florida and is the uh, Breckner Eminent Scholar in Mass Communication and Director of the Marion B. Breckner's First Amendment Project at the University of Florida. He's here today to help... uh, Guide us in this interesting discussion between First Amendment rights and uh, the freedom of the press. Also, um, third-party funding of lawsuits. We appreciate you being here, Dr. Clay Calvert. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, set the table for us as we as we kind of start this discussion. Um, so Peter Till is the the founder of PayPal, right? Uh, worth about two billion dollars. Correct. He was outed by Gawker Magazine as gay back in 07. Right. It was a subsidiary publication, but correct. One owned by Nick Denton and Gawker. That's correct. Yep. Meanwhile, later, Hulk Hogan uh, has a a lawsuit against Gawker um, because of uh, videos that that were private videos of him that they that Gawker released to the public, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. So essentially in, in that underlying it's an invasion of privacy lawsuit. Uh, many people always say it's a libel law. So okay, yeah. Inv- invasion of privacy. That's correct. Which is different, right. right? I mean, I mean, an invasion of privacy. Is that why uh, Hulk Hogan was able to win this? Yes, I think it actually is uh, because it, it really came down to the, it was a sex tape that he said had been taken without his knowledge, without his permission, and then that Gawker ran excerpts of this sex tape. Uh, on the internet, and then went into graphic descriptions of what was in it as well. And essentially, he said, "Hey, I might be a celebrity, I may be famous, uh, but I do have some shred, at least, or some sliver of privacy still left. And when I'm in a bedroom, uh, and uh, I don't know a sex tape is being made, uh, this the publication of that tape therefore violates my privacy rights." Right, that was his argument. Yes, interesting. And he won that, uh, and then had a. I think it was a jury settlement, wasn't it, of about $140 million? Yeah, yeah. It was a, yeah the jury verdict came down and said yes. It inv- so it's a jury of, of you know, people in Tampa, and they said yes, this violated Hulk Hogan's right of privacy. They awarded him $115 million wow. in compensatory damages. And then, as you said, 
another $25 million uh, in punitive damages. So $140 million uh, total. So a ton of money. <laughs> Jeez, that's incredible. And um and not common, right? I mean, those kind of those level that level of settlement. That's that's kind of that's right. un, unheard of. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it's a huge verdict, and I think a lot of it has to do with the jury's disdain simply for Nick Denton and one of the editors uh, for Gawker, who on the stand, uh, well, he had given a deposition and he was cross-examined about the deposition, and he basically suggested that. All sex tapes were newsworthy, in his view, unless it featured a child under the age of four years. Oh, man. And and, and that just was so damning, really, uh, because it it, it was flippant. He was was intending to be sarcastic, but, you know, sarcasm doesn't translate well (laughs) in a position in a legal trial. Yeah, Yeah, that's where you just need to, you know, play it straight. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly. Man. So here's the, I guess, here's the dilemma, right? So Peter Till has the money to keep suing Gawker, and... Um, and make sure that this $140 million needs to be paid, along with other potential future lawsuits. Peter Till could just keep throwing the money at it. But what are the rights – what are the First Amendment rights here? And and so teach us. What is – and is Gawker even a traditional media journalist-backed paper? I mean what constitutes journalism today anyway? Right. Well, OK. That's it. Let's, let's start maybe with that part because that's a good question. So – it, the Gawker is very different from the mainstream news media, which follow traditional ethical principles of journalism. Many people might laugh and say journalism is not ethical, but nonetheless, right. mainstream news organizations do adhere to ethical principles, and Gawker has always pushed the edge of that. The argument on the First Amendment side, however, is that the First Amendment just says freedom of the press. It doesn't say mainstream press, right. fringe press, first tier, yeah. And so a victory for Hulk Hogan against Gawker starts to nibble away. That's kind of the fear here, the slippery slope. Well, if they can get a verdict against Gawker, then who's next down the line? They'll start uh, you know, inching closer and closer to the, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the, the mainstream Washington Post kind of newspapers of the world. So, so yes, the fact that they may be fringe uh, does not mean they're not protected by the First Amendment, because how do we define who's a member of the mainstream and not? It's impossible. Right, right. They are a member of the press, whether we like them or not. And so that really is the fear here. And then as you're suggesting, yes, Peter Thiel has the uh, financial wherewithal to continue on multiple fronts, not just the Hulk Hogan lawsuit, but to finance other lawsuits targeting Gawker. And as you know now, Gawker has filed for bankruptcy right. uh, as an attempt now to avoid paying out the $140 million. But I would add the case is now on appeal, uh, or will go on appeal. And so whether or not uh, on appeal it's reversed, uh, maybe the judge gave the jury the wrong instructions, that still remains to be seen. I mean, what's clear now is it took a lot of money to defend the case so far, and and they're never going to get that. Gawker's never going to get that money back. Right. You know? So, so even if the ultimate outcome on appeal is flipped over in favor of Gawker, a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of expense and effort has been spent on it so far. And I guess one of the big issues, and this opens up a whole other can of worms. And you wrote about this. You've got an, I think, a wonderful article in theconversation.com. dot com. Uh, called Does Billionaire Funded Lawsuit Against Gawker Create Playbook for Punishing Press? We'll put that up on our Twitter page as well so people can track it down. Thank you. You bet. It In that, um, you, you really you dive deeply into the third-party litigation, which 
it really is, I think, probably becoming a cash cow for many attorneys. Yeah, it is, actually. And we see it much more in corporate in corporate matters. And third-party litigation funding is – there's Burford Capital. There are a number of mainstream organizations that do this. And typically what they do is they take a stake in the outcome. So they'll front the money to finance the lawsuit, which otherwise might not uh, – the plaintiff's attorney might not have the money of doing that. So essentially they say, tell you what, we'll help fund your lawsuit. This is the traditional model of right. it. And then in the end, we're, we're going to get a cut of it. You know, so the attorney gets his cut or her cut, and then we're going to get a cut, and then the plaintiff. And so, so you're gambling kind of on an outcome down, down the line. What's different here is that Peter Thiel was not seeking money by taking no. the cut. You know, he was seeking revenge. And that's, and that's kind of the controversial one. That, and certainly it does, as I suggest in that article, it does create a playbook for millionaires and billionaires, if they really so desired, to make attacks on the press and to try to force members of the press into bankruptcy. Uh, in this case, though, I really think it's two men who obviously just despise each other, uh, Peter Thiel and Nick Denton. And, and as you suggested, Denton uh, outed uh, Thiel. Yeah. Uh, and. And I don't see it as a larger conspiracy theory that he's going to suddenly – Peter Thiel is going to go after everybody else. But, yeah, he has created the roadmap or the playbook such that if somebody else was so desired, they could probably follow it. Mm-hmm. They also have to get, as I suggested there, the same set of lucky facts where you had people uh, on Gawker's side who the jury obviously didn't like, right. Hulk Hogan who they did like, the yeah. facts lined up. It was a sex tape. It was hidden. It was the perfect you know, storm. Perfect storm. Exactly right. Well put. And you couldn't. I mean, yeah, so that won't always line up. Uh, it, it seems, though, um, in many cases or many times, the media has an advantage just because they can state it. And, um, and you know, you, you as the some, some innocent person might be scrambling trying to stop the media or beat the media. But um, companies seem to push a lot of other people out of business by just litigation, right? You can sue small businesses or smaller entities, you know, or threaten lawsuit after lawsuit. So companies do this all the time. Um, Media has a disproportionate advantage many times. How do we, how do you ever balance all of these rights and needs? No, that's, it's a really good point. That what you're kind of getting at initially there are what we call slap suits. Yeah. Uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation. Is, what, <laughs> it's a slap is that what it stands for? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Strategic lawsuits against public participation. And that, that tends to be when the little guy is speaking out, criticizing some big corporation. And then the big corporation doesn't want that person uh, crit- uh, criticizing them. So what they do is they sue the little guy, basically. Yeah. They know the lawsuit's frivolous, but that's not their point. The point is that it becomes too expensive for the little person to stand up and litigate that case. Right. And so he says, tell you what, I'll shut up, I'll go away, you drop your lawsuit. And so, and so you know, those lawsuits are frivolous, and now a number of states, about 30, have what we call anti-slap statutes, would essentially allow those cases, because they are frivolous, to be dismissed quickly. So okay. you're right. I mean, it, it, it's bullying on both sides. So, so we've seen Peter Thiel now positioned as a bully, and somehow, miraculously, Gawker now becomes the media hero, <laughs> when in the past they were always considered very fringe and right. know, on the outside. Who, and then even Gawker received some backing by a billionaire. Who stepped? Yes, exactly, to fund the appellate cause. Exactly, okay. So, so two Silicon Valley guys now 
Thiel and the other person. So they're going to continue the funding. So basically, Gawker had run out of money. It declares bankruptcy, but this person in Silicon Valley, another venture capitalist or entrepreneur, uh, says, well, I'm going to now fund Gawker. So, you know, it's fair on both sides, I guess. If you can find the person who wants to do it, go for it. Wow, Battle of the Billionaires. Battle of the Billionaires. It should be a new reality TV show. That's right. (laughs) No, thanks. We've already (laughs) seen what TV shows can create. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Clay. Calvert, and he's walking us through uh, First Amendment rights and really the power of money to, um, to maybe upset the whole apple cart. We'll continue the discussion. Be right back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Online with us, uh, Dr. Clay Calvert. He's a professor at the University of Florida and is a uh, the Breckner Eminent Scholar in Mass Communications. And he's walking us through uh, an article he wrote that uh, in theconversation.com all about does billionaire-funded lawsuits against Gawker create playbook for punishing the press? It really is a. I think it's it's a weird convergence. We're at this we're at this point in history where. What constitutes journalism? I guess it doesn't necessarily matter because they have the freedom of press, right? The freedom to to uh, publicize information and, and speak out. Uh, meanwhile, what's interesting, though, is that can happen on a blog now, right? That could happen on a phone call. I mean, that could happen uh, on a show like mine. It's this freedom of press is is there. And now the power of a billionaire to be able to shut you down legally or even a, a, a third party that's not even involved in the lawsuit can 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 change the game quite a bit. Uh, Dr. Clay Calvert, thank you so much for being with us. Sure, glad to be here. Talk about the uh, this kind of going forward. I mean, the you make a great case in your article that uh, this third party backing happens all the time, right? Whether it's the NRA backing certain lawsuits, the uh, I guess the ACLU, other organizations are third party entities coming in, and we I guess we suppose for a good reason, but it, it makes it so uh, the small guy can have a fight. Sure, I mean we, that that's. One of the points I make, and others have made too, not just me, but the fact that when we see the ACLU uh, or any other nonprofit organization taking on a case, usually, you know, that's really considered pro bono. I mean, the person they're funding that lawsuit, and typically the ACLU will work with another law firm, a big law firm in their city, that its lawyers will do the work. So. We think of that, and we don't think of that as third-party litigation funding, but somebody else is really covering the costs, and they've selected the plaintiffs. In those cases, though, we tend to think of it as more noble, especially like somebody is challenging the government right. doing some action, and this little person is fighting for civil rights and civil liberties. Uh, here, it's a very different uh, fact. The other point that you made is really true. I mean, how do we define the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law you know, affecting freedom of the press, but how do we define who's a member of the press? Yeah, is that a blogger? Yeah, and and the other game changer here, I think, is really important, is the Internet, because 
once something is out on the Internet, mm. including the sex tape uh, of Hulk Hogan, it's out there for good, really. Uh, and I think courts and jurors are starting to recognize that. So, you know, yes, it's a constellation of different factors here uh, coming together. Uh, you know, without the funding, really, from Peter Thiel in this case, I doubt uh, an attorney, a plaintiff's attorney, really would have taken this case on because it, it, it costs a lot to litigate a case like right. this. The media defense attorneys are paid by the hour, by the, by the company or the insurance company from the news organization. Plaintiff's attorneys, what the, they might get a retainer up front of here's ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, get the case going for initial costs. But the rest of it, they're gambling on. Yeah. It, you know, it's like a speculating. If, yeah. So, so if they don't win, they don't get paid. So, so to devote the amount of time and hours uh, that the attorneys for Hulk Hogan spent here on this case is pretty significant. And the only reason they were able to do it was because Teal was funding them. So, some people might see it as simply leveling the playing field. Uh, but on the other hand, you're you're trying to destroy. A member of the of the news media, even if they're hugely fringe on that point, so. mm-hmm. you had a pro, you had a proposal, I believe, because um, I mean, and maybe one of the things you can do is just make so all attorneys have to um, state they have to overtly state the financial backing, who's backing this this case. Exactly right. I mean, it, transparency is is just you know the answer probably here because I think that's what that's what annoyed people and. You know, the first stories and hints came out after the trial was over. In other words, I think it's kind of as if people saw Teal as like sandbagging them at the end. Uh Oh, now we find out you're behind it, you know, and it makes him look even more evil in some people's minds because he was all secretive and cloak and dagger. So I think if we had transparency up front and you knew this, then... I think the public would have a better, you know, ability to understand truly what's going on here. That this was a battle, not simply between Hulk Hogan and Gawker. It's a battle between Peter Thiel and Gawker over something that happened, uh, you know, back about eight years ago. It's there's something just about a good old American, you know, person just trying to do their best, and then even a threat of a lawsuit can it can be staggering. It can be life changing. Then they immediately have to engage an attorney, and some people can't go, you know, a month of engaging an attorney to fight something. So I bet overall there's so many of these that people just – they give up their own right to do what they're doing. They give up their own rights to speak simply because they can't afford the fees. Exactly right. So, I mean, if you think of exactly what you're saying, is there there might be many more people out there who have had their privacy invaded, uh, who might have legitimate lawsuits. Uh, but they they might simply say to themselves, you know, I can't I can't take this on, or maybe it's the flip side of that. In other words, yeah, litigation costs can be immense and also time consuming. Um, and in this case, you had somebody who was willing to uh, you know have the purse, uh, as it were, to to fund the to fund the case, where otherwise the case might never have gotten off the ground. Uh, so. Oh. You you must be having a heyday today or this this month because you've not only got this story going on, which is totally in your wheelhouse. Plus, I want to hear what you think about Donald Trump's blacklist. He has a media blacklist. Oh, yeah. And um, as somebody that studies this and has studied it to the 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 highest degree, what what on earth do you do with a man that could be president um, who's already blacklisting the media? Yeah, it's 
it's quite stunning because now it's the Washington Post as yeah. well as every every a, a bunch of organizations. Yeah, let me let me give you some, let me give you some of them. Uh, the Huffington Post was was another one of the on the list. I believe um, the New York Times has been oh, placed yeah. on the list. Um, uh, oh, who else? I had the whole crazy the oh, National Review, and- Politico, BuzzFeed, New York Times, Des Moines Register, Mother Jones, Sheesh. <laughs> Univision. Yeah, and they'll they'll keep covering him, you know, and they're going to keep doing that. He's just trying to exclude them from press conferences and things like that. It's a it's a totally new tactic that no one's ever, that to the best of mind. I mean, people have always been Nixon and other people have you know they not like the press, and all politicians don't really like the press when they don't do things favorable. Right. But to actually exclude them, yeah, from this is is a is a very different move, uh, and. Uh, it's it's really crazy because all it means is he's going to make those media outlets even more frenzied against him, <laughs> uh, and they're going to keep digging up dirt against him. And he doesn't have many friends in the news media, and even the Wall Street Journal doesn't really like him. So you know, it's it's <laughs> he, he's shooting himself in the foot uh, yeah. uh, here by doing that, and it's it is unheard of, and it's just we're into a very weird, obviously, uh, campaign season here. It's Did, uncharted, uncharted territory. Have you ever heard, and I can't remember which group it was, it was either like the Washington Post, the, the Washington Times, I can't remember. Somebody had dozens of their, um, dozens of their people researching, doing back research on Donald Trump to create stories. Did you hear about that? No, I've not, no, but I, I don't doubt that would be, uh, um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think I think the, uh, he is just treading on different things, and he, the things he says. It, the irony here is that the mainstream news media gave him so much free coverage and put him in this right. position. Right, And, and that's, that's where the mainstream news media is somewhat responsible for this mm-hmm. phenomenon, because he would say outrageous things, and they would keep covering him, and then one by one, the mainstream candidates, as it were, fell by the wayside and and so in a way they they blew him up and promoted him into this position by giving him free coverage mm-hmm. and now he's kind of biting the hand that fed yeah. him uh so yeah it's it's a, and now they're biting him back the, and, the, the, bite him back. Right? and that's the thing and, and everything he says is just going to be and he's and he's looking more outrageous with with his comments that that he makes every day. And uh, I, they've not been able to rein the RNC has not been able to rein him in. Mm-hmm. Do you, as a as an expert, uh, Clay, in First Amendment, do you feel like um, and the press is there is there a responsibility on the press to be a responsible press? Um, is that part of the First Amendment at all, or is it just they have the freedom? To be responsible or irresponsible, and then I guess the markets have to balance the rest? That's that's pretty much it. I mean, it, it, yeah, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of the press, and it doesn't say a responsible press. But I think most of the mainstream news organizations that I've suggested have kind of bought into this bargain that, okay, uh, you keep your hands off of us government, and we agree to abide by certain ethical principles of, of fairness or objectivity, whatever it might be, and we're going to try to do that, the, the fringe outlets don't play by those rules. And increasingly, even on the mainstream, if you think about MSNBC on the left and Fox News on the right, we don't, they don't all play by those same rules either. Uh, so yes, the First Amendment provides a huge shield of coverage for both 
the fringe as well as the mainstream organizations. It's just that the mainstream organizations typically play by a different set of rules. Uh, but as you're suggesting, the ultimate marketplace forces are it. If, if nobody watches it, uh, so we're complicit in it is the other way to look at it. If you go to the grocery store and you buy the gossip magazines and you think this is tawdry and trashy and sensational, uh, but by buying that magazine, we're propping them up. Uh, it's right. the same thing as we were just talking about with reality TV shows. Uh, hey, a lot of people watch them. So, so that's the marketplace forces. I mean, if nobody was buying it, if nobody was watching it, the news organization would go out of business. You know, yeah, so. Right. Oh, wow. And so overall, when we look at the First Amendment, um, you are we okay? Is is the cut surviving? Are we sliding? Are we losing it? Yes, yes. The first the first amendment is okay, and and that's one of the questions too with the Hulk Hogan trial. Initially, I think a lot of people said the sky is falling. It's one hundred and forty million dollars. Uh, I I see Gawker as on the outside uh, of of most of the news media outlets. If this were against the New York Times, and here's why it wouldn't be, because the New York Times would never publish a sex tape. It might say Hulk Hogan made a sex tape. Mm -hmm. But the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, no mainstream news organization is actually going to publish that. So they would never face that issue. Yeah, right. so maybe a little pruning here and there is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I, again, I hate to say that, but it's, I don't think the sky is falling on all news organizations. The First Amendment is still strong. And even though Trump has said, I'm going to roll back libel laws and make them a lot easier to sue the media, he has no power as president to do that. Right. Libel law is state law. It's <laughs> judge-made law. It's statutory law. It's not executive-made law. So he can threaten that. Uh, making libel laws easier to sue people, but uh, he has no power. Right. (laughs) Hey, I appreciate it. Dr. Clay Calvert, thanks so much. Keep up your great work there at the University of Florida. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. You bet. And keep writing. Um, I'm telling you. Sometimes the little dog, the little snipey dog that just won't quit yapping, sometimes it needs to be, you know, bit by a little bigger dog. Just a little bite. Then it just quits yapping. Uh, survival, I guess, of the fittest? Who knows? We'll take a break, folks. Interesting stuff. But uh, at least you have a right of a free press. And sometimes that might, you know, hurt. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we have a, the, the freedom of press, and it, it you know the government can't interfere. you got to stay out of it. Except uh, that didn't happen in South Carolina. Apparently, a, a South Carolina man was arrested Wednesday afternoon after investigators saw an online ad offering marijuana. I know that, dude. Dude, um, according to the Drug Enforcement Unit, James Canelli the uh, third posted an ad on Craigslist. This is what he typed: uh, "Pot." Dot dot dot. I sell weed. Slash two hundred dollars. The ad not only went into detail about the prices and locations where he would sell the drugs, but also had Kinley's picture and phone number on it. Well, you need to know like who you're yeah, who you're working who, with. Who your vendor is like This is a face you, you can trust, dude. 
You don't buy carrots from from some random guy off the street. Yeah, you don't buy carrots from some ashen-faced man. You buy them from an orangish-looking young 20-year-old girl that eats carrots all day, and it's taken over her body color. The ad not only went into details on prices and locations, but where he could buy the drugs. Once authorities were made aware of the ad, an agent texted the number uh, and asked if it was real. Kinley reportedly called the agent back, asked what he needed. How much do you need, man? Oh, no! <laughs> and uh, guess what happened? You won't believe it. But then the agent set up a, a location, a chance to meet. And when Kinley arrived at the meeting, by the way, I'm going to bed in a van full of smoke. Vapor. Vape. They placed the guy under arrest and arrested him for um, half an ounce of marijuana. And he was taken into custody. You can't even use Craigslist anymore. <sighs> ruined. Craigslist has been ruined for a long time, I think. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of bad stuff has gone down on yeah. Craigslist. But uh, interesting, this whole thing, you know what they call this in Colorado? Yard sale. This is a yard sale. Farmer's market. A farmer's market. Yeah, it's got to be the farmer's market. Yeah. Because, yeah, farmers. Hey, um, so anyway, Spicoli, dude, it's it ain't easy. Hey, interesting story I found here. Uh, this might be important for all you listeners. Out and listen to land. Very hot drinks are probably carcinogenic. You need to watch out for hot drinks. Hot drinks. Anyone who likes to curl up with a steaming hot drink should consider letting some of the warmth subside. Drinking it, according to uh, this article on CNN, could increase the risk of developing cancer. In a review published today by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the Cancer Agency of the World Health Organization said drinking very hot beverages was classified as probably carcinogenic to humans. More specifically... The review by a panel of global experts stated that drinking beverages at temperatures above 65 degrees Celsius or 149 degrees Fahrenheit could cause people to develop cancer of their esophagus, the eighth most common form of cancer worldwide. That is so not cool, man. I know it's not cool. That is so not cool. I know it's not cool. Here's video of the committee talking about hot drinks. That is so not cool, man. I know it's not cool. That is so not cool. I know it's not cool. There are the chair people. Uh, Drinking tea, coffee, or other hot beverages at this temperature can cause significant scald burns in the esophagus and when they're consumed and has previously been linked to an increase in cancer risk in this part of the body. The findings come after a group of 23 international scientists analyzed all available data on carcinogenicity of coffee, mate, and leaf infusion. That is so not cool, man. So uh, you got to watch out for the hot drinks, right? Watch out for the hot drinks. Could have told you this years ago. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach. 
your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the tools, the latest uh, research, the latest and greatest information to help you live longer and love stronger. Today, this hour will be no different. We will be talking with Maura Weigel about um, her book, Labor of Love. It's all about dating, the history of dating, where dating came from. Hmm. Uh, I, I did this this topic. Was, was there no dating before? Interestingly, no. Wow. It was, that would have really streamlined well, the process. There's always been courting, but um, dating is something that has kind of evolved, and hmm. it may even be a manifestation of our, mar- our kind of our market economy. Yeah. Right? So it's very expensive to it's, date. It's a fascinating book because she gets into all of these phrases we use that are about dating um, that involve like it's it's an investment, mm-hmm. and there's there's benefits to dating, right? And uh, you know you have to terminate it. Sometimes you got to let someone go. Well, we I had the story last week of the Russian lawyer who uh, him and his girlfriend had a falling out, and so he sued her to get back all the money he spent while they were dating, calling it a business relationship, not really a romantic relationship. Right. And he wanted the what like thousand bucks back, or I don't know. <laughs> I need my money back. It, I, it's a I, transaction. I've discussed this with my uh, my wife. The amount of money spent while we dated, and and really the have, have you made back your investment? I don't know. Oh, you've got to say yes. Oh, really? Yeah. I was just being honest. Yeah. I don't no, want to base my relationship on lies. Well, no. There's a place to lie right there. <laughs> so when when I ask, hey, have you made your investment back? You're like, oh man, times fifty. That's what you say. Did you really? not know that? No. Yeah. Oh, your poor wife. I used to keep like ticket stubs for movies and you <laughs> try to add things up. You have a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, owe me. At this point. Would that have been an appropriate time to dump? Ooh, wow. Should she have ended the relationship? No, when no, I no. That I mean up? like dump what you said. Yeah, that's where you yeah. hit the dump button. Oh, wow. For your benefit. No, no, it's fine. My wife knows this. We've no. already discussed it. She Usually, told me to be quiet. Usually when we're talking, don't worry about dumping. Okay. Okay. Um, but whenever you're talking, just keep your hand on it, the dump button. Really? I mean, just in case. Just be safe. I thought you guys liked what I said. No, we love it. We love it. Yep. Uh, anywho, changing the subject, we've got, today is um, Smile Day. <clears throat> smile power. Mm. Do you feel the power behind that smile? No, I don't. Why? Eh. It's also Fly a Kite Day. And if you can fly a kite with a smile, guess what? You get the best of both pointless days? Yep. Okay. If this doesn't make you tap your toe. They're, they're remaking this movie, by the way. Makes me smile. I'm smiling. I saw a report they're going to have a live action version of Mary Poppins. Really? Yeah. And my wife's question was, wasn't the first one live action? And I went, oh, yeah. It was. So why did they write the article that way? Yeah. Aren't they calling her Mopo? I wonder if they're going to have, like, real penguins instead of, oh, like, sure. the cartoon penguins. For sure. Yeah. Except, have you ever tried to work with a penguin? No, I have not. Difficult. I imagine so. They're always so uppity in their tuxes all the time. I know. I'm totally with you. jerks. Wow. Violence. We uh, are going to get to that, but first... 
and foremost. Let's get to the headlines, find out from Terry what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Orlando shooter Omar Mateen's wife, Nora Solomon, is reportedly under investigation of a federal grand jury. Solomon allegedly knew of her husband's plans to carry out the attack, which killed 49 people and had scoped out the nightclub where the shooting took place with Mateen earlier this month. It appears she had some knowledge of what was going on, Senator Angus King of Maine, a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, said. She definitely is, I guess you would say, a person of interest right now and appears to be cooperating and can provide us with some important information. So the wife under investigation. Uh. Seven in ten Americans hold a negative opinion of Donald Trump, according to New Washington Post-ABC News poll released Wednesday, marking the highest unfavorability rate for Trump during the entire 2016 campaign so far. Clinton is also not happily looked upon by Americans, holding a negative favorability rating of 55%. But despite Clinton being at her least liked in two decades, she is still vastly preferred to Trump, whom 56% of respondents say they strongly disliked. In fact, Trump, his negative ratings have skyrocketed up 10% uh, in the last month. Uh, Trump has particularly lost favor with independents and white Americans without college degrees. If you remember, he had that press conference yeah. where he said he loved the uneducated. Yep. Don't, apparently, they don't love him as much as they used to. He's losing his place. And despite Trump's appeal to Hispanics, 89 percentage points of uh, what? So Trump has always talked about how uh, the Hispanics love me. Right, right. Eight, this says 89% hold an unfavorable opinion of him, according to the Washington Post ABC So the real poll. data shows that they don't love him. But, they don't love but him. But he thinks they do. But he says they do. And he says it so convincingly. He does. He says tremendous a lot. Well, 10% of them don't hate him. Oh. Right. So They probably also don't even know who he is, that 10%. True. Just minutes after the polls closed in the last Democratic primary of the season, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders met Tuesday night at a Washington, D.C. hotel to discuss the future and the best way to defeat Donald Trump. The pair was joined by a bunch of staffers and people that were all there to make sure everything was copacetic. Uh, Before the meeting, Clinton's advisors told the New York Times she wanted to know how to go about gaining an endorsement from Sanders and whether he would ask her for any political promises. Aides to Sanders said he wanted to know how committed Clinton is to progressive goals like raising the minimum wage. Two advisors told the Times that Sanders is worried that Clinton might tell him what he wants to hear now, but will take a moderate turn in order to win states like Ohio and Virginia. Sanders will hold an online discussion with supporters Thursday to discuss the move forward and possibly out of actual contention. Wow. It's happening. If you press somebody hard enough, they'll do whatever you want. Maybe. We'll see. If you give them enough concessions, maybe that works too. Uh, A 37-year-old man arrested Tuesday in Seattle after the the FBI told police he allegedly made threats against a local mosque. The unidentified man posted online threats on Tuesday. The Seattle Police Department said he claimed to have recently brought, bought an assault rifle and extra ammunition. Oh, man. Shortly before 3 p.m. SWAT and hostage negotiators arrested the man at his home following an incident the police department described as a standoff. Police said the man has been contacted before by authorities investigating harassment and threats against other mosques. So we've done this before. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of what President Obama talked about yesterday. Hillary Clinton's talked about it, that you start ramping up this sort of – uh, sentiment against Muslim Americans, and then certain people take that to be an invitation to do things right in this situation. So, not that there's a rash of these things, but that's kind of the fear. Right, right. Uh, the NHL is reportedly planning to expand to Las Vegas. 
According to a person with direct knowledge of the decision who spoke with the Associated Press, Quebec City was also considered for the expansion, but a second source told the AP that Las Vegas is all but a done deal thanks to the recommendation of the NHL's executive committee. An NHL team would bring the nation's gambling capital its first professional sports franchise, but such an expansion won't come until the 2017-2018 season. So hold off on your season tickets at the earliest, and official decision from the NHL will come on June 22nd. Interesting. It seems like you wouldn't want a professional league or organization like that, sports organization, to be in a gambling mecca. Well, seeing that... All the sports franchises or sports leagues have embraced the daily fantasy league gambling, yeah. not gambling concept. I think they're relaxing their aversion to gambling. Yeah. Except, well, you can't, can you? Like, you, the, like the players can't gamble, right? They can't go into a casino and gamble, can they? I don't, I don't know. know. I thought they were. I thought they were forbidden to they, do that. I don't know. Isn't that what Pete Rose? He. He got into gambling and then he gambled yeah. on his games. Yeah. I know they, they, they really don't want you to do it. It looks bad. But Interesting. I, 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 the NBA held a all-star game in Las Vegas a few years ago. Uh-huh. Chaos. Oh, yeah. Just oh. all kinds of crazy things going on. You, that, had, you yeah. had a football player at a club with money that mm-hmm. people got shot at. And you had all kinds of stuff happening on the street. All these newspaper reporters swear they saw a dead body right there on the main street <laughs> through Vegas. But there was no confirmation. And just everything was – it was nuts. And the NBA went – it was kind of a test to see what – yeah, what it would be like. And What's it like, like nah. when we bring these guys here? We'll go ahead and move the Los the uh, Oakland Raiders are talking about moving possibly to San Antonio or Vegas. Oh. Those are some options there for the NFL. I don't know if the NFL would allow that, but uh, it's been talked about. Hey, help me figure this out. Yes. Um, I don't know what Obama's talking about here, but he says my daughters think it's weird that no female president yet. Okay. President Barack Obama may have canceled his first campaign appearance with Hillary Clinton, but he's not avoiding touting her history-making campaign. His but daughters his, asked why that hasn't happened? Yeah, yeah. his daughters are wondering. They, they think it's weird. We haven't already had a president, a woman president, Obama said. They hmm. expect the world to catch up to them. And I have no doubt that we will. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess. I. It's like with anything, why hasn't a certain person from a certain group of people made it to a certain point yeah because no one has made it to maybe the lower levels or you know you have to get uh, women to to the point of a vice president to get to that you know you kind of have to yeah. climb a ladder and make okay i've, I've made this standard now i can move to the next one and My it's like and they, they talk about thoughts. ceos for businesses right yeah why, why don't we have more women ceos and it's it could be that they're not being promoted from the lower right. ranks to the, the managed managerial levels and that needs to happen first before you know so there's other initiatives that need to happen before you just drop someone right in the, the head seat. He's just, I think he's making it up. Could be. My kids wonder why we don't have ice cream that doesn't give you a headache if you eat too much too fast. I'm working on it. My kid wonders why we haven't gone to Pizza Planet yet. Great point. Pizza Planet only exists on Toy Story, but my son wants to go there. He wakes up almost every morning. Can we go to Pizza Planet? Your, your so, boy does? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a matter of... Uh, managing managing expectations. Alert, children, nerd! Right? You know your son's on the verge. Yeah, no, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Nerddom. <laughs> He's cute. Yeah, cute. Um, but I mean, in in this situation, I mean, you it's just, just another of, pitch. 
you exp- so you don't think his daughter's actually questioning no. that? You think he's just using this as yeah. a... Yeah. Okay. He's making it up. All right. I don't know. Maybe, but do you think they sit around? I don't know. Maybe they do. It just seems, like con- I don't know, contrived. Because ha- has there been... We had Sarah Palin, who was a vice presidential candidate. There was yeah. a... I forget the, who it was, but there was a woman back in the 80s... 70s that ran. Yeah. She was a vice president. Ferraro, Geraldine. Yeah, there you go. And I think that's it. That's it. Even I mean, to, that's crazy, yeah. Even to vice president. You know, right. you, you'd think you'd have to get there first before you could try for president. Yeah. You know. So we've had a couple that have, have made it to the vice presidential level, and now we have one that's made it to the presidential We definitely level. should have had one by now. I'm just doubting Obama's statement. Because when Obama was running against President Clinton or Hillary Clinton, yeah. you know. Yeah, I don't think he thought she was qualified. Yeah, it wasn't like he was going to step away and go, yeah, you go ahead. Hey, ladies first. This is best for history. If he was an honorable man, he would have just said, no, no, after you. Secretary well, he Clinton. had to make history yeah. with the African-American community men, first. Yeah, African-American men first, yeah. then Caucasian women or any other woman next. Right. Yeah. We should have had a female president, I would say, 100 years ago. Just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Society wasn't really we weren't ready. Well, open to that yet. There was women voting yeah. 100 years ago. That was a new thing. I wonder if we... Even I wonder, at this point, I don't think it was. was but I'm going to bet we'd be in a different place right now. Hmm. We wouldn't be having the Trump-Clinton beatdown. It hasn't really started yet. Oh. It's like we're waiting. This is like the pre-fight, the undercard. We have, <laughs> we have like the surrogates out there kind of trading blows because yeah. like Hillary Clinton totally. really hasn't spoken... No. For the weekend, they they had the the Washington D.C. primary, and then she met with with Bernie Sanders, and it's like, where's where's Hillary? Why can't? But who comes out yesterday punching President Obama? Yeah, Swing. who said he was out there ready to fight for Hillary? Yeah, he needs to because this is his legacy, and then this will keep. Some are saying the third term of Obama. Trump had another campaign rally last night. How'd that go? Um, I and saw a, maimed? a reporter who was in the crowd and he just started tweeting the, uh, what he was witnessing. <laughs> Can we talk about not it? Not really. Not okay. really. There's several things that happened that, uh, I am so scared. <laughs> again, you had him from, uh, from the microphone saying, don't hurt the protester. Really? Yeah. Just stuff like that was going on and there was random fights, pushing and shoving, but again, this is the pain. Some Americans, are they're in pain. They're in so much pain that they're like, what should we do tonight? I don't know. Let's go to a Trump rally. Yeah. And they go to a Trump rally and express their pain. And then the others that are in pain, what, what should we do tonight? I don't know. Let's go, let's go set up a picket line for the people that are at the Trump rally. Yeah. Let's just fight the people that are coming out fighting. So. This is, these are all signs, <laughs> not just of the times, but signs that people are hurting and we need answers. Um, well, today on this hour of the show, we're not going to talk about the political answers because we don't have any. We are going to talk about dating and a history of dating and the book Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Uh, Maura Weigel will, will be joining us. She's the author of that book and uh, she's going to walk us through a very, very interesting history of dating, where it came from, where, where, we, where dating actually takes place. It's interesting. A world review as well. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, love longer and stronger. We'll be right back. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dating is dead, exclamation point. Come on. You know, it's not what it, what it used to be. That's what we keep hearing uh, today that, you know, these kids, they just don't date like they used to. Um, you know, men used to pick up women up, knock at the door. Now it's all Snapchat and Tinder. But is that really what's going on in the dating world? Are they are people not dating anymore? Um, and is it really as awful as it seems or as some people make the dating world seem? So we thought we'd bring in the pro. And uh, who better to teach us about dating and what is dating than um, the author of the book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece that reviews the history and maybe and some of the some of the parallels of dating and, and the, you know, the advancement of, of uh, women and women's rights, the advancement also of, of market economies and global marketing and even social media. Maura Weigel's her name. She is a Ph.D. student at Yale University um, and in comparative literature and film and media studies and a wonderful author. Maura, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Honored for and introduction. Well, this is a great. I think I so I'm a relationship coach, and I love uh, I love helping couples that are married stay married, communicate. But what's interesting, Maura, I loved your approach to this because I've I've always struggled um, talking about the dating side because I, I don't want to become cynical to it, right? I don't want to look like a oh, dating. These kids don't date anymore. And so li- listening about your book, reading your book, I've, I started to find that there's a there's there's an interesting history to dating. Teach us what dating. It, it's it, talk about the history. I won't even lead it into what I want yeah, you to say. Yeah, well, talk I about the history the question to the question of whether or not dating is dead. I always like to say, you know, the invention of dating is the invention of the death of dating. <laughs> um, adults have and I count myself among the adults regretfully. So no name calling here, but they have always we have always worried that uh, that younger people are not doing it right. Uh, so the history of dating, as you were sort of alluding to in your introduction, uh, is about 100 years old. You know, people, it sounds strange now because we all take it for granted that that's the way we do things. But if you think of most times and places in human history, that is not how people have paired off. It's usually been controlled by families or by community leaders like priests or pastors or rabbis. And uh, and it's really very, very new and very shocking uh, when young people start to do it around, around the turn of the last century in 1900. And my hope for exploring all of it was to bring, you know, some clarity and to sort of dispel some of this huge anxiety that I think you were bringing up. Yeah. Because I do think the sense that young people aren't doing it right, nobody ever feels like they're doing it right, and it produces a ton of anxiety. For people on the dating market, <laughs> which is why I guess they seem like they're not uh, doing it, but maybe the anxiety makes it so it's something they do quietly. No, I think. Look, I think that what you're getting at is, um, I think what dating is for every generation changes really dramatically sometimes with other changes in the economy. So, you know, one of my favorite details uh, that I learned in my research was that. The first women who let men take them out to dinner around 1900, um, these were working women, women going into the city alone without their families, which is a pretty new historical phenomenon then. 
uh, those women were often arrested for prostitution for letting a man buy them dinner because oh. that was the only, um, you know, that was the only thing that looked that it looked like to right. the police and to the authorities then. Even if it wasn't a money for sex transaction, and when it often wasn't, um, you know, but it was money <laughs> yeah. for a meal for your romantic consideration. <laughs> it was. Um, <laughs> oh, jeez. No, we're just having dinner. That's yeah, horrible. No, I mean, it's really funny. I um, a lot of the the first chapter of the book is about prostitution or sort of semi prostitution in this way that um, that you know I think people who go out and you know again this this ritual of the date, if you think about it, compared to like the Jane Austen type ritual where a man comes to your house with your parents, this ritual of the date, which traditionally involved a man buying something for a woman, often kind of looks like prostitution. I think we still have some of that anxiety with us, this anxiety about like, well, what is it for? Who's getting what? Do I owe him something? Like these kind of thinking, which you still see people having comes yeah. out of that. But in the early police records I read for my research, you constantly see these women being dragged into jail, dragged into the reformatory, saying to the police, no, I didn't take any money, I just took the meal. Um, and, you know, which is not to say that they had no material considerations. Often they did, because women were paid quite poorly and were often quite poor. Um, so often it was that they needed a meal. But uh, but I'm not joking about that. Yeah, they no. really were arrested. <laughs> And it's interesting, too, I guess. So historically with dating, then, dating was tied to having money. You you needed money to go out and and have an activity or, you know, you had to have enough money, I, I guess, as dating became more and more OK, less of a potential arrest. Um, it yeah. was it was it was probably, I guess, the wealthier class that were doing it. Totally. Well, it has a funny history that way because it starts out as a real working class and like poor immigrant phenomenon, and that's sort of from 1900 till about World War One. And then, uh, then you get these sort of flappers and fussers, these really kind of upper class college kids imitating it, and it becomes fashionable. So that's I don't know if people know the book The Great Gatsby, or yeah. Side of Paradise. That's like that era of of dating, and it's really only. A bit closer to World War II that it becomes a sort of middle class, going steady Norman Rockwell soda counter kind of thing that I think we probably now have in our minds when we think of, you know, quote unquote traditional. We always mean the 50s in America. Yeah. I think. Um, but yeah, so it definitely goes from being working class to being sort of upper class first. And it's still, you know, it was always expensive. It's still expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, in time as well as money. I mean, if you think of the amount of time people spend tending to their, okay, Cupid profiles or their, I mean, I guess the Tinder profile takes less time, but Hinge or, you know, many of these apps demand quite a lot of time before you even get to buying anyone a drink or a dinner. That's true. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you've got to get through, you know, 20 text messages eventually to a call from the call to a place to meet. I mean, it, it could take weeks. Totally. Yeah. And it's so, um, you know, it's like many things in this country, I think it's increasingly divided along class lines. It's very different for people with more or less money. But for people, you know, in lower income brackets who are often working multiple jobs, like that's a lot of time. That's not a, a negligible barrier. Uh, so anyway, so it's still it still costs time and money to date. You, if we don't necessarily think about it that way. Right. One of my favorite things that you talk about, um, because just some of the parallels, are the parallels between dating and working and kind of, yeah. you know, kind of a consumer, like a, a business kind of model. Even the terms mm -hmm. we use around dating and working parallel so closely. 
Totally. Um, I always, I used to have, I don't have it memorized anymore, but one very long sentence that uses all the market metaphors we use for dating. <laughs> so, you know, it's things like on the market, off the market, damaged goods is not a nice thing to say, but it's a thing people say, um, hard to get, friends with benefits, investing time in a relationship. I mean, all of these are thinking about courtship is just permeated by these economic metaphors. And that was part of what got me interested in writing the book, really. And very early on, I realized it was kind of a history of the economy and especially of women in the workforce, which, again, you know, um, I call it labor of love partly for that reason. Uh, People only start dating as opposed to having their parents fix them up or their community fix them up once you get women in the workplace with the freedom and the obligation, you might say, uh, to find partners. So. So, yeah, absolutely. From its very beginning, it changes with the economy in all sorts of ways. It has to do with that original invention being about women in the workforce. It has to do with, um, you know, very practical things like, you know, there weren't movie theaters and then there were. That was a thing to go to on a date then. Uh, or, you know, working hours, which have gotten so much longer since the 40-hour week of the mid-century. I mean, Americans work much longer yeah. and much more regular hours now. So I joke that, you know, used to say, a man would say, I'll pick you up at six. And that's when I you up. Right. It's like, who knows? Yeah. I mean, that looks like a decline of chivalry, and maybe it is, but it is also a practical expression of the fact that nobody's done with work at five anymore. Right. <laughs> or most well, people aren't. Yeah. Um, and you could be, you could actually be working and dating. I mean, you could, being at work together, hanging out and talking could feel like, you know, the same connection of dating. Absolutely. And I, what I thought you were going to say is being out on a date, if you have your cell phone, you can also be taking work emails. Oh, that's true. <laughs> See? Yeah. Which adjusted the date, right? Oh, totally wow. a blend. Um, and then I do the last way I think that they shape each other, which is the hardest to measure. But in a way, to me, the most powerful is I do think all these concepts about, you know, how should a person be to be valuable or competitive in the economy I think do shift over to dating. Uh, You know, I've taught at Yale. I teach at Yale undergrads as part of my PhD. And I always think it's sort of funny that, you know, everything we tell them about the job market is like, you have to be flexible. You have to be adaptable. Never expect anything to last a long time. Like you can't put all your eggs in one basket that way. (laughs) And then people look at the hookup culture you know, this idea of sort of casual relationships and say, what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) What's the exact same Logic, you know, Tinder is an Uber for dating. These are just dating on demand apps. Yeah. To me, I think, in a way, the hardest to measure concretely, but the most interesting is the way these these sort of abstract concepts about how we should be and how we can value other people uh, then sort of trickle into the dating the dating sphere. Mm. Like, yeah, just that's such an interesting idea that our the yeah how I set you up to be you know a healthy employee. And a, a marketable employee is the same paradigm I'm using to teach my daughter to what, to date. Right. Well, I think it's. I think probably you know uh, unconsciously. I think I don't know anything about you and your daughter, but most dads don't want their daughters to be active right. hookups. Right. No. But no. Right. But I think those values do cross over, and they make a lot of sense. And in the case of the apps, I mean, these are literally the same tools. I mean, LinkedIn. And okay, Cupid, you know, a job website and a dating site are actually extremely similar in terms of their structure, their protocols, their layout, 
what they solicit you to do all the time. You know, LinkedIn is like, add this to your resume. And OK <laughs> Cupid is like, add another book that you like, and then you'll find the person of your dreams. Oh, wow. Um, so oh, wow. There are a lot of similarities. Yeah, no, between, exactly. Between those platforms. That's interesting. Um, uh, we're speaking with Maura Weigel, author of the book Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Maura, let's take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion. I want to find out if love has changed. Um, are we sure. redefining it? And and also, um, you know, how, do, how does dating follow as women um, have taken their place uh, in, in society as an equal? Um, I think it's got powerful insight as well. Stick with us. More with Maura Weigel and uh, the dating game, folks. Not the game, the history, but uh, it's still a game. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Dating is not dead. It's just changing. It's it's a different game. Now you use an app. And uh, it might be valuable, as uh, Maura Weigel is talking to us, to uh, make sure we're, we're looking at um, the paradigms behind how we look at and view dating or, you know, the, the, the parallel uh, systems that are going on, our work systems, our technology advances... Um, or advancements. I mean, so much is going on that's impacting how we would have to date. Maura Weigel is a PhD uh, candidate at Yale University in comparative literature and film and media studies. She earned her BA um, from Harvard University and is the author of the book Labor of Love, which is her first book. And uh, she researched it and um, tells wonderful stories. Uh, that she re- that she got you know from research, but from history, but also even uh, Mora from your beautiful ninety uh, six year old grandfather. That's true. Um, that's true. And it was actually oh gosh, I'm unexpectedly getting sentimental, but he was actually uh, very ill while I was finishing the book in the very last week, and uh, and I was I went to be with him because I uh, live out in California, but he is in Minnesota, and. Uh, it was actually really lovely. I got, I mean, it was sad, but yeah. he was sort of in hospice care, and I got to spend, really, as I was writing the conclusion to the book, I was staying in his basement and getting his stories. It was funny, actually, the one of the hospice caregivers who was around most often was another older woman who was from, also from rural Minnesota, and so I actually did get a lot of lovely oh, great. dating anecdotes, sort of like several generations yeah. of Midwestern dating anecdotes <laughs> at that time. But yeah, he had a great he had a great time of it dating. I think he and my grandma really had one of those great 20th century romances, or, you know, they met, he went away to World War II, they came back, they, uh, so he was happy to talk about oh. it. Isn't that amazing? Kind of the multi-generational view um, of love and dating, it's it, it probably was exactly what you needed, right? To to be able to yeah. put the well, what I what I love is what, part of what was so fun about writing the book, um, and what I hope is fun about reading it, uh, is that it really is a subject that pretty much every single person has some kind of relationship mm. to, and so you know, my grandfather. 
probably not very many things about <laughs> his dating life and my dating life were similar. Right. But um, but yet there is, you know, I think the vulnerability, the desire to connect, the sense of, I think dating all through history has been both kind of anxious making and made people worry about what they're doing it right, but also kind of fun and exciting. And those emotions were all things we could share. Oh, so that was great. Yeah, totally. Well, he there is, there's this scandalized. universal, it's a universal experience, right? I guess. <laughs> he might have been scandalized by a few things in the book. In a way, I'm like, it's maybe not the worst <laughs> that he didn't get to read all of it. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that's how <laughs> God works, miracles. Yeah. Um, but, well, and what yeah. a, I think, just a beautiful experience for you. What about um, love? Is it, is it, is it the same? I mean, is it, it seems like it's, it, it might even be taking on, less of a romantic quality or is it taking on more of a romantic quality now now we've got all this technology and ability is it easier to find the perfect person that we think is perfect or are we more likely to settle now well i think that it's a complicated question because i think it's funny when i was writing this book i was thinking oh dating dating as a history this was like this huge revelation to me and then about halfway through, I thought, well, of course, love must have a history, too. All human things yeah. have a history. And I think one way I like to think about it is that I think there are certain aspects of, you know, our desires for one another, how we care for one another that don't change and are maybe part of our biology or sort of part of the kinds of animal we are. Yeah. And, uh, and then parts of it really do change when you think about social roles, you know, whether it's how husbands and wives interact, how parents and children interact. Some of those things do change over time. And one metaphor I really like to think about it that I borrowed from a philosopher I admire was, is that it's, like, it's almost like watching a movie star in a movie. And it's like, if you look at, um, oh, what movie is out now? I don't know. <laughs> Let's say I'll do an old movie, you know, Brad Pitt, Legends of the Fall. It's like if you look at his character, are you looking at Brad Pitt? Or are you looking at the character named whatever the name is? Yeah. Um, and you're looking at both. It's impossible to say where one starts and the other ends. And I kind of think of that in terms of, you know, in any act of love, in any relationship, there are parts that are probably timeless expressions of our nature or our biology. And then I think there are parts that really change in terms of social role and the different kind of scripts that we're given to sort of fulfill our desires and instincts. And so I think that that's very abstract, but I do think, yeah. I do think love changes in time in some ways too. How my mother expresses her love to me or to my father is quite different to how her grandmother would have, I think, and absolutely different to how someone who lives in China now would express it. You know, these mm. things do vary across time and place. Do, um, do the men, yeah. has it changed with, with women and, um, women now really rightfully finally taking this this position um, at least in our dialogue where it might they might feel more equal um, are they is it is it is it changing the dating experience I mean I've had people say I don't know why why aren't the women asking more people out why aren't it's so it's almost like we 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 still haven't necessarily evolved to that point. I think that's absolutely right. And one thing that fascinates me is I think that sometimes our, our norms and our expectations about romance kind of lag behind economic realities or sort of other changes mm -hmm. uh, in society. So I think I absolutely agree with you. There is no reason why a woman should not initiate a romantic, you know, encounter or relationship 
uh, there's no reason, practically speaking, why women shouldn't take that kind of agency. It's like, historically, you know, the reason that people think of women as passive and needing to be sought really comes from this, like, situation from the 1800s or older, right. and having to call on women in their homes where women really couldn't, were not allowed to go out in public on their own and see people. That is not our reality. There's no reason we still need to do that, but we do... Um, we do still adhere to that cultural idea, often, I think, to the detriment of both men and women. I think it makes, you know, oh, yeah. it forces women not to be able to express themselves or pursue what they want. It also puts a lot of pressure on men. <laughs> like uh-huh. this idea that ma- a man has to, a man is responsible for sort of initiating every stage. So I think that we do, uh, I think, you know, if you think about career advice versus relationship advice that are sort of bestsellers, I think it becomes very clear, and you'll get the career advice, and it's all about, like, ask for it, lean in, be assertive. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the romantic advice, it's the opposite of that. It's true. It's like, and you, you bring know, that up. It's not him, it's you. Yeah. The rules. I mean, there are all these, like, titles telling women never that they can't ever go after anything. Isn't that – and, again, why? I, I guess it is just – it's kind of just – it's almost um, – I don't like a Victorian age kind of concept that of I don't know nobility I don't know what it is it's but like yeah, you said we lean in af- go after yeah. it make things happen be in, you're empowered break the glass ceiling now it's like oh, yeah. I'll wait but I have in my business I have so many men that are they're shy they're they don't they they want to date but they don't feel socially able. But then I have so many women that come see me that are like, why aren't the men asking people out? And I'm like, go ask them out. And they look at me like I'm nuts. That's not my role. Yeah, I think, you know, those gender norms are taught to us from a very young age and put into us very deeply. When I hear you saying that, I'm like, probably everyone wishes we could just like call time out and suspend all those rules. Exactly. I think it would be great. I think we should do. I'm calling for that on the radio now. (laughs) That's great, right now. But but I think that... uh, I think that women are really taught to think that they won't be lovable if they show certain kinds of initiative and agency, and it's like sort of the deep fear that a lot of us feel. And I think men similarly are taught by all these signs in the yeah. culture that they're not like real men if they don't, you know, ask women out. Again, I would say I do think there is sort of an unconscious economic aspect. Men do still earn more money yeah. than women. You know, I think it's whatever it is, 70 on the dollar, 77 cents. Um, women are disproportionately bear the burden of the risk of pre- unwanted pregnancy right. and child rape. So there are all these ways that some of the same old disadvantages do apply more yeah. than the lean-in crowd would like to think about. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that these these norms are counterproductive. Uh, and sort of outdated, so I am calling to. You've done go it. Ask. You're... Thank all the ladies, go ask <laughs> Well, and maybe maybe it's an echo back to a hundred plus years ago, where you know an aggressive woman or a woman strong enough to go against the norms would go out to dinner with a gentleman and then be arrested for prostitution, even though she was just going to dinner. So maybe it there's is, this this evolutionary echo of be careful, don't step beyond the is. mark, or you're in trouble. I think it is. It's crazy. What um, what do you see as the future of dating? I mean, now we have all this technology, and you know, it, which almost turns into a game. And I might even feel like, hey, yeah, I spent an hour on Tinder, so I've dated tonight. Right. 
Well, I think that Subad exactly gets at the crux of it. I mean, I, I should say, you know, if I knew the future of dating, I live out here in San Francisco, I would have, I would have an app, and I'd be <laughs> you'd be a billionaire. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know exactly, but I think that. You know, I think that what we see now in the past few years in terms of trends with these dating apps and how people use them is this push towards more flexibility in relationships. Um, some people say more efficiency, which I think is a little crazy for reasons we could talk about. Um, but I think that there are good things about that. You know, whether you are a recently divorced person or an LGBT, LGBT person or let's say someone with physical disability, you know, someone differently able. Um, I did all sorts of research on demographics who were able to connect who had really had trouble dating uh, beforehand and found these online tools incredibly useful. And they're useful to people, you know, I personally believe that people should have freedom to define whatever kinds of relationships they want. So they're very useful in that respect. I think the downside, you know, the downside of flexibility or the flip side of it is something like, you know, what I would call precariousness uh, that these apps encourage us. You know, any app makes money by people using the app. It's sort of a funny, I think Christian Rudder, who's the founder of OkCupid, said it's a funny kind of service business where if you do your job well, yeah. the customer never comes back. <laughs> right. So, uh so all of these apps are strongly incentivized to keep people on the app and keep them from pairing off. Tinder, which you brought up, is a perfect example. I mean, Tinder game, Tinder, I just said it, Tinder, you know, we said we play Tinder. It's like a video game about dating. Yeah. Um, and I think that, ironically, these very tools that are supposed to make the process, quote-unquote, efficient, whatever that would mean for a human relationship, um, that these tools of efficiency actually lead us to waste a huge amount of time basically doing free work for the dating app, which right. is what we're doing exactly. when we swipe for hours. So I think that, unfortunately, I think we'll see more and more companies that try to make, you know, try to make money, try to create businesses off of, you know, harnessing these very deep, unchanging impulses that all humans have to connect with other humans. Oh, I think that's and, great. That's yeah. that's great. That's great insight. Uh, they're tools yeah. of entertainment, really, right? And entertainment doesn't always equal partnering. Yeah, I think probably it rare, it rarely does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, it's I mean, it's, it's the I same think. thing. You can go to a thousand, you know, uh, movies, but that might keep yeah. you from talking too. Exactly. Exactly. It's a great analogy. Or it's like a bar, like, you know, a bartender. I you think of the mom and dad, usually the mom, who would run the Jane Austen courtship scenario. Right. In that situation, the parents have a strong financial, legal, and hopefully emotional interest in their children pairing off with the right person. Um, a bar owner, you know, the person who owns the platform, if you yeah. want to put it that way, or creates the site of courtship in the era of dating, has the opposite incentive. And the bartender doesn't care if you get married. He would rather you didn't. Oh, that's um, He just true. wants tips and people to keep coming and buying drinks. And it's the same with these dating apps. Oh, man. Um, Maura, you're on it. That's it. <laughs> You've solved that. We've got a, That's a great shift in my paradigm right there. I have never thought of that. You're brilliant. Maura Weigel, appreciate your great work. Keep writing, and uh, I, I look forward to the next book. Thank you so much. You Go bet. You bet. <laughs> okay. The, right. Thank Bye-bye. you. The name of the book is Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, and uh, you can go find more out about Maura at uh, maurawigel.com. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Great insight uh, from Maura Weigel. I, I'm, you know, I'm convinced that dating's it, it's different. It's not what it used to be, and that's why I think as uh, the older generation, we always look back and we're like, ah, you kids just aren't doing it quite right. But we, with technology and the advancement of technology, the advancement and uh, equalization of women in the in life and in the workplace, and we say they're equal, except again, if it's still if they're still ending earning sixty cents on the dollar or less, um, or I mean, sorry, forty cents on the dollar or thirty cents on the dollar to a man, then you know the idea of asking a lot of guys out isn't financially responsible. So. We we need to blow up some of these paradigms. And I guess it's one thing if you want to. You could just sit there and be mad uh, and and wish that the world would change so this would all fly straight for you. Or you, you can adjust. Um, one of my big beliefs when I talk uh, to singles groups and singles organizations, uh, certain people just kind of swim into a pool. I call it just a pool, a pool of single candidates, right? Um, and they just swim in and they, they just, they're, they, they're good at finding what they want and they, they're good at and socially skilled enough to make it happen. And then they swim out of the pool with their future partner and then they'll go date. And if it doesn't work, they'll go back to the pool. But some people spend so much time in the pool that we actually forget what our goal is, right? And we, we start commiserating with the pool. We start hanging out with the pool. We start making plans with the entire pool. And our belief is that we're more likely to find a, a partner if we are in the pool. But the downside to being in the pool is uh, some people are intimidated by pools of swimming singles. <laughs> it's scary. I can't tell you, and I don't get it. I think men are losing confidence. And women are gaining confidence, but also won't take the initiative to go start, in, you know, initiating the dates and making them happen. And again, more and more, I'm I'm working with the guy that just doesn't dare do it, and I, he goes up to a single and feels dismissed or not not safe. I don't know how you fix that. And so I think what people do is they fall back on something that's a lot safer for them which is an app, and and then all of a sudden they might join into kind of more of a hookup culture where I'm not – I don't want to date you, but let's – yeah, we could go meet and maybe kiss, make out. But don't don't make me – don't make me relate to you. Don't make me find out about your family. I don't want to meet your dad. And so we got to be careful. If you're, if you're in that hookup culture – you're going to be hurt, right? And you're not necessarily learning how to create a more intimate, deep relationship. Um, the rules are changing a bit, and we got to be willing to change with them if we want to be in the game. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you uh, love stronger is the goal. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. 
your coach, your guide on the side. We got a great hour show here for you. For this is going to be um, a lot to learn. Have you ever heard? You know, you're sitting there, you're listening to all these voices, you're hearing voices just as you're standing. I don't know at a party or something, and then there's that one voice that stands out, and you realize, oh wow, mom's here. My mom's here. Apparently, um, uh, the mother's voice is is a, is a voice that uh, our children's brains are wired to hear, and it is the it's uh, in less than a second a kid can recognize his mother's voice. So we're going to be talking about some research about our brains and uh, mom's voice and the effect that mom's voice has on the brain. Fascinating, fascinating research. We will be getting to that. Um, also, we're going to be visiting our good buddies, who, who, by the way, when I hear their voices, Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation, I think I ha- it has this incredibly calming effect on my, me. I feel I feel relaxed because <sighs> I know my show is almost over and it's nap time. So we'll be talking with Spencer and Jerem at the top of the uh, hour. Their show's at the top of the hour. We'll be getting to them in about 40 minutes or so. Plus just a lot of news stories. We've got a, a Coaching the Con segment coming up um, as, as we like to do as a volunteer service. We like to help even the criminal element uh, be better criminals. Um, we're going to go there as well. So, plus, uh, uh, apparently, a stormtrooper uh, was cited and arrested. So, you got to watch out for stormtroopers because they'll get you. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if it's a stormtrooper; it could be some other trooper from Battlestar Galactica. It could be some Star Trek alien. They're just dangerous. And we want to warn you about that. That's coming up. Plus, of course, more video per show than any other radio show on earth. We, a lot of radio shows don't play videos. We like to play videos for you because we we think it enhances your life. We really go beyond the the, the mark set. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And it's it really is it's it's to get your mind thinking. It's the we want all of your neurons firing. So we'll get to that, but first. Speaking of neurons firing and Battlestar Galactica, here's Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Not sure what that meant, but it was probably derogatory. No, you'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Sad news this morning. The search continues for a two-year-old boy who was dragged into the water by an alligator near Disney's Grand Floridian Resort and Spa near Disney World in Florida. The effort is still considered a search and rescue operation. Jeff Williamson, a spokesperson for the Orange County Sheriff's Department, says we are very hopeful. Uh, He said in a morning news conference, sometimes you get the worst, but we're hoping for the best. More than 50 law enforcement personnel search overnight in the well-tended lagoon, along with alligator trackers, two marine units, and an effort to continue to uh, try to find this little boy who was uh, who was taken by the alligator. So tough news there. Tragic, tragic. Uh, the Senate voted Tuesday to approve a defense bill that would, for the first time in history, require a, a woman to register for a potential military draft after they turn 18, as men do now. The National Defense Authorization Act passed in the Republican-led Senate 85 
to 13, with seven Democrats and six Republicans voting against it. Obama has warned that he would veto the bill, which also approved $602 billion in military spending, keeping the Guantanamo Bay prison open and halting the Pentagon from closing several military bases around the world. The House passed its own defense bill in May and will meet with the Senate to come up with a compromise between the two versions. The House bill excludes the women uh, draft requirement, but also chambers... Uh, agree, both chambers agreed on keeping Guantanamo open against President Obama's wishes. Republicans are divided over the issue of women registering for the draft. In the New York Times report, Senator John McCain, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, says the fact is every single leader in this country, both men and women, members of the military leadership, believe that it's fair, since we opened up all aspects of the military to women, that they would also be registering for selective services. Mm. There you go. Ted Cruz, on the other hand, is like, why am I sending my daughter into battle? Right. Why are you sending your son, Ted? Those are two. He doesn't have a son. But those are two. <laughs> that we know of. That we know of. Those are the two sides of the argument mm, there. And they're okay. going to figure that out as they yeah. go. Uh, Republican Representative uh, Michael McCall, chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, is worried that Donald Trump's combative tone against terrorism might just make things worse. In an interview with Politico following Trump's speech Monday addressing the Orlando shooting, McCall suggests that Trump's proposals, such as a ban on Muslims entering the U.S., might actually aid terrorists' recruitment efforts. I think you have to be a little careful with the rhetoric the Texas congressman says you don't want to inflame or help the recruiting efforts of ISIS. That's a good point. You don't want to give them an advantage and more video footage. Yes, that they can make their propaganda videos out of. What was funny was there was no proof that they were doing that until Uh somebody said it, and then ISIS started putting Trump in their propaganda videos. (laughs) So don't even – just the suggestion, it happened. Right, right. And this this news out of New Zealand. What? There's a crime spree going on. Uh Uh-oh. Avocados. Oh, those are bad. The crime waves. A surging local and international demand for avocados is fueling a crime wave in New Zealand. Since January, there have been close to 40 large-scale thefts from avocado orchards in the North Island of New Zealand, with as many as 350 fruit being stolen at a time. Wow. It's suspected. How? I don't know. That many more thefts have gone unreported. Avocados are selling between 2 and $3 a piece across the country after poor season last year and increasing local demand. According to New Zealand Avocado, in 2015, an additional 96,000 New Zealand households began purchasing avocados. And local growers, largely geared towards uh, the lucrative export market, have been unable to keep up with the surge in demand. Oh, my heavens. Who is stealing who is stealing? Uh, I mean, I guess then you you go sell it on the black market. Hey, man, you want an avocado? Says the recent thefts have taken place in the middle of the night. The crops either raked from the tree and then collected in blankets or sheets on the ground, or handpicked and driven away to pop up roadside sales, uh, like kiosk type things, grocery stores, or small scale sushi, fruit and sandwich shops. This is the kind of the places oh, yeah. so where they they're, they're showing up. Um, so they, they happen in that time period. It's overnight. They, they can't really see any sort of pattern to how they're doing it. They just sort of at random, they hit yeah. this, this orchard here and this one over here. So, yeah. So, so if anyone's getting hot, hot avocado, hot guac, hot guac, <laughs> then farmers are installing automatic lights and alarm systems yeah. on their orchards. You need dogs and dogs probably to keep people out. But the dogs would just eat avocados all night. 
Oh, that's crazy. Crazy. Okay, let me give you a little quiz here. I'm going to – we're going to play a voice and I want you to um, – uh, we're going to play a sound and I want you to figure out uh, what you hear. It's the Jetsons. Janet Waldo, the voice of Judy Jetson. Doesn't this bring back memories? Yeah. Judy Jetson died at age 96. The voice of Judy Jetson. Here's Judy. I remember watching this on the old cartoon station. What do you mean the old one? Is like there, the, the new... outdated. You mean the original? Yeah. You mean the original? The outdated? Yeah. You mean the... the that's a little weird. The original audio. I mean the original cartoon network that invented the cartoon. The Jetsons. No, so like when when they didn't want to show it anymore, they put it to the station. Yeah, see, you're so lost. Uh, Janet Waldo, best known for voicing Judy Jetson on the animated TV series The Jetsons, has died. She was 96 years old. Judy Jetson, what a great mother she was. Huh? Took such great care of Elroy. That wasn't... Judy Jetson. Jane, Jane was the wife. Yeah, Judy Jetson Judy's was the, the daughter. one with the white hair, the teenage daughter. Oh, really? I thought you knew this stuff, Matt. I thought that was the mom. What was the mom's name? Jane? Jane, Jane yeah. Jane Jetson? Oh, I th- I was in love with uh, not the daughter. She was too – I always used to think the daughter was too much of a woman for me. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, she was older. <laughs> she was a teen. Uh-huh. I was more a little older than Elroy. Well, so you liked the mom? I just thought the mom was very motherly. Oh, okay. And this was a group of people that early on adopted the importance of robots. This they did. Do you think they had a kill switch? On Rosie? Did Rosie have a kill switch? Just in they case. They did. I think there was a there was a series, there was a segment about Rosie's kill switch. Did she go They probably was. I know there was there were several where she kind of went Sideways, she started doing some weird things, and programming got mixed up. And she, Rosie started going out late at night, yeah. hanging out with other bots. Yeah, I love Lucy. That was part of my repertoire. Andy Griffith show. Get smart a little bit, but the Jetsons, man. But I don't remember Judy being the young one, huh? She was the young one. She really. I, I thought she was older than me. I thought she I, she was out of my league. Like well, this is like a revelation for you. You're like, really? She's the daughter? She was. Uh, huh. But it's interesting because I, I had other girlfriends. Um, Marianne. Yes. On Gilligan's Island. She was in my league. Ginger out of my league. Okay. Marianne in my league. I see that. Ginger, too much of a woman. Gotcha. Marianne, home hmm. folk. More down to earth. Country girl. There you go. Another death, uh, sadly, Alf. Alf. The, the, the actor that played Alf. He's he died. I was completely unaware that there was an actor that played Alf. Now, if you don't know Alf, Alf the TV show Alien Life Form. Yeah. Alf, little he, furry, little furry guy. He he loved cats because he'd eat cats, and that was kind of the joke on the show. He's always chasing <laughs> the family cat around the house. But he landed, and a family you know picked him up, and they had you know sitcom antics with their friendly alien guy that was hanging out stranded on Earth, and he usually would just sit there. Yeah. 
and be in a kind of a stationary position, and that was a puppet that they used. Yeah. But then occasionally you would see him walking around, and this guy that died, if his name is his name is uh, Michu Mizaros, uh, died at seventy six. He's two foot eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Two nine. Two nine. I gave him a couple inches. Sorry there. Born in Hungary, and performed in the circus before he was became. Before he took the role of Alf. So he'd put on the Alf costume and that's how Alf See, would walk around. See, that was another great show. I had no idea. Smallest man in the world is what he was billed as. Um, so sad deaths there. Not a death, though, with a stormtrooper. I, I'm going to need your help on that. Oh, okay. Just because you know your stuff. Well, so, um, well seeing as the last – you introduced the news by – Bringing in like Battlestar Galactica, those aren't even stormtroopers. They're Cylons. Nerd alert! It's different. They're not stormtroopers. They're Cylons. They're called Cylons. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> fell into that one. Uh, not so long ago. Just be accurate. Um, the so <laughs> Sunday, last Sunday, in a small town uh, far to the east of Atlanta, about fifty miles east of Atlanta, a man spent the night in jail dressing for Star like a Star Wars stormtrooper mm. or a Cylon. No, he was a stormtrooper. I think it was from Star Trek. Well, for Star Trek, that's something completely different. And the man was then charged with wearing a mask and reckless, reckless conduct, conduct, because he had this this Cylon was carrying a, a lightsaber. Yeah. Because Cylons and lightsabers go hand in hand. They don't. They're crossing genres. It's bad. Alert, nerd. Justin Marling's full pop, uh, armor and plastic gun created a concern as he's walking down Newborn. Um, this town of Newborn only has 700 people. Jasper County sheriffs were called in, and he was arrested. And he he said all I was doing was trying to raise awareness for a charity, Star Wars Force for Change. Mm. Was this apparent by anything he was holding? Nope. Or okay, he's just walking he's around walking in a stormtrooper at night costume. All right, I could see. Not, that I mean, would... not a big deal. Yeah. But uh, I'm convinced that he was a Cylon. No, it's Stormtrooper. It says right there in the story. Stormtrooper. No, Star Wars, Cylon. But what would be the difference? It wasn't a Stormtrooper. Or Cylons came before Stormtroopers, right? I don't know the time, I guess, timeline between when Star Wars happened versus Battlestar Galactica. But, but if, you, if, you, if you put a Cylon against a Stormtrooper, obviously the Cylon would win. I don't know. Well, what would put your money on it? What would you think if you had to choose? Well, seeing Which force it, of darkness. If you're watching the Star Wars movies, the uh, stormtroopers they can't hit anything when they fire their fa- their their yeah. laser rifles. I right. guess so because they have the blasters and they can't hit anything. I would guess the Cylons would have the inside track on the win there. Are the, are the, and the Cylons are robots. Uh-huh. They're not. Men wearing like plastic. Like men wearing plastic. And, if, and from the new movie, the new Star Wars movie, you find out that the, the, the armor they're wearing really doesn't do anything for him. Finn says that at one point. He goes, it's, it's pointless. We just wear it, you know. Wow. Like it doesn't filter out smoke. I guess it filters out smoke but not light or something. I don't know. They use it mm. to their advantage. And as you watch him walk through the desert, he's just like ripping off pieces of it. It's just it's pointless. Whereas the Cylons are robots. You are. Not a lot. They're non-feeling, just they function on the directive of the program. They would have the advantage over the stormtrooper. Hey, Terry. You asked. Um, I told you. Yes. Don texted me and asked me to stop using the nerd alerts. Okay. Um, So can you stop talking? (laughs) Dude, you're a nerd. We we just trapped you. We trapped you right into that. How'd you trap me? You asked. I answered. I don't hide this. Well, I brought up 
Battlestar Galactica yes. being their stormtroopers were better stormtroopers. And then you went off on Cylons. Well, it's because they're not stormtroopers. Yeah. And again, like I just said, it's robots just, versus men in plastic. useless armor. Yeah, but it seems that like. can't seems, shoot straight. Right. Just nerd alert. <laughs> That's all we got to say. In the new series of Battlestar Galactica, oh, anyway, the Cylons up, are uh, actually humans okay. that yeah. have been yeah. created. Morphed, weird humans. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to be talking about your mom. We need, we, need a, we need some audio of Terry's mom saying, Terrell, settle down. Terrell go, South. Go to, Terrell South, go to your room. Because if we had that... Then when he goes all nerd alert on us, we just shut it down just by having his mom's voice. I wonder if we could get her to record it. Oh, we could. She's a wonderful woman, despite her trials with her children. She's great. We'll take a break, come back, be talking with uh, Dr. Daniel Arthur Abrams about his research on what happens in a kid's brain when they hear mom's voice. Whatever it is, it could induce fear. Or is it calming? Find out. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, throughout your life, you'll hear countless voices of people that you meet and come across, but uh, many will be forgettable and even hard to identify. Some that you'll become more familiar with, you'd be able to detect and, uh, and notice later on in life. But if you listen to our show enough, you might even recognize, you know, even Ben's voice, as one of our fans has fallen in love with Ben. Uh, he happens to be a truck driver from, from I think, Idaho. Or he was in Idaho. Anyway, um, but studies show that there is no voice more important in a child's development than that of their mother. And here to discuss his research about the brain activity that occurs when um, children hear their mother's voice is Dr. Daniel Arthur Abrams. He's a Ph.D. at Northwestern University and specializes in auditory cognitive neuroscience. Dr. Abrams, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey there. How are you? Great. Great to have you on. This is, to me, this seems like a no-brainer, except you're validating some pretty deep uh, research. Um, talk to us about what you're finding out about mom's voice and a child's brain. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's nothing uh, earth-shattering about uh, the idea that a, a mother's voice is an important sound source for kids. And um, and so there's no new new ground being broken on that front. Any mom will will moms that. know that. Any kid knows that, moms right? Know that, and anyone who's observed the, the interactions between a mom and her child, which is pretty pretty difficult to avoid uh, noticing, uh, will will be able to kind of attest to how important a mom's voice is, and how important mom is, of course, to to kids. Um, and so you know, so that that's not novel at all. But what is novel is surprisingly, despite you know m- many years of uh, Research um, on the brain in in kids and adults and humans. Um, no one had done the study to look at um, what what brain circuits are specifically engaged in kids when they hear their mother's voice compared to unfamiliar voices. 
and so um, and so that was the study we designed and performed. Um, and that's why we're we're talking. Here is it that. is it? It's interesting because as I sit there and I think, um, I I can maybe tell my kids something um, and try to motivate them. Other yeah. people can try to motivate them, but what happens? For some reason, when mom starts talking or mom gets serious, uh, does it calm the kid down? Does it does it does it just go deeper into their brain? What what's happening chemically in the brain when mom's talking? Yeah, right. So, um, so what I can tell you about is what particular you know brain circuits are engaged when a child hears mother's voice, and um, and and what our, what our study showed is that um, compared to unfamiliar voices. So these are uh, control voices that we also uh, played to the children while they had their brain scan. So as you might imagine, during the brain scan, children are intermittently and randomly hearing either their mom's voice interspersed with uh, 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 unfamiliar female voices saying the exact same thing. Yeah. These very brief, and importantly, these are very brief sound samples, less than a second. Of, of speech in each of these utterances. And so, and what we found is that um, when a child hears mother's voice, um, uh, a whole slew of interesting brain circuits become active and they include parts of the brain, not only associated with hearing, but also parts of the brain that are associated with processing reward. Um, and there's a very kind of important brain circuit that that's associated with reward processing. So, for example, whenever you hear your favorite music or if you eat chocolate or something pleasurable, this, this circuit in the brain becomes active. Well, what's interesting is that in a child's brain, um, when a child hears uh, his or her mother, this this pleasure circuit, this reward circuit in the brain becomes active. Oh, wow. And so so that was novel. Yeah. And, and interesting. Uh, in addition, other parts of the brain associated with emotional processing, such as um, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala, um, and this part of the brain also becomes active when hearing mom's voice. And also, finally, kind of the last interesting tidbit, which was very surprising, which was face processing parts of the brain. So these are parts of the brain that are important for discriminating between different people's faces. Also became active when hearing mother's voice. Now, the catch is yeah. that these kids weren't seeing any pictures during the brain scan. They were only hearing their mother's voice. They, they saw there was just a blank screen in front of them for all of the sound samples that they heard. There's no visual stimulus. And uh, nevertheless, when they hear uh, their mother's voice, these space processing parts of the brain become active. And so it's, you know, and we... We think that they may be you know, maybe some kind of neural form of uh, visual imagery for mother when hearing the, their voice. Yeah, and maybe yeah, they're starting to look for that face. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that's what, the idea. Well, I mean, in a, I mean, it seems like a lot of this, like the amygdala kicking in, because that's kind of isn't that the fight, flight, or you know, mate kind of part of the brain? Yeah. So this is an important part of the brain for all kinds of kind of emotional processing and fear processing. The amygdala is associated with a number of these kinds of processes. And, uh, and, and it's also an important part of the brain associated with just kind of interpreting emotional information and processing different kinds of effective information in our environment. 
and uh, and here and here we are just hearing this very very brief sample of uh, mother's voice again less than one second of mother's voice is able to um, you know activates all of these different brain regions hmm. uh, simultaneously. Um, is there any difference with when they hear dad's voice? <laughs> yeah, great question. We've gotten that we've gotten that question a lot actually. I bet. Uh, and and the answer is we don't know. Uh, we didn't study that. You know, mother. You know, in the in the uh, behavioral literature and the developmental literature, really, mother has this kind of privileged spot in the in the literature, at least. You know, uh, in the sense that people have been studying for a long time. For example, we know that 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 fetuses in utero can can discriminate and identify their mother's voice. Believe it or not, when they when they measure heart rates, fetal heart rates. Um, they can determine that a that the fetus is able to hear and identify their mother's voice compared to other voices. So there's this kind of long right. and storied history of mother. And so, and while of course we're interested in all kinds of different biologically important voices in a child's life, including mothers and fathers and caregivers and teachers and all these people that are so important to kids in their development, um, we 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 aim to kind of the arguably one of the sweet spots, which is mother, just because there's such a big mm. history of yeah. studying this. It's so rich there. I don't know. If I were going to bet what you where the kid goes in his brain when we are talking about fathers, I'm going to bet he'll go to the video game section <laughs> and and the overstimulation Sports section. section. possibly. That's right. Exactly. I know that's where, where my kids' brains would probably go. No, so. totally. Mine would, too. Mine would know that they're probably going to be – that a ball is going to be coming at them fairly quickly. And Because yeah, right. <laughs> I have five boys, and so the minute they, they think of dad, they're like, uh-oh, there's going to be a ball. Watch for the ball. That's right. Um, what else? What else did you learn? Because this is it's, – it's pretty telling that our brains – Within one second, you found, right? So within one second, a kid can can determine if it's his mom or not instantly, and then it goes to that part of the brain, which which shows almost how automatic a lot of our processes are. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of one of the really surprising parts of the result. We, we did not anticipate such dramatic results for such a brief stimulus. Right. And so it really does kind of reflect how... how uh, automatically and how quickly and efficiently the brain um, identifies this important sound source and then gives it access to all of these different brain systems. You know, we think that many of these brain systems may be important for learning. And so, you know, if the brain is able to quickly identify the sound source and then give access to this particular sound source, to brain regions that are important for learning, well, that seems like it would be adaptive and very important for child development and learning. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is really kind of, we were really surprised at how efficiently it appears the brain is able to um, to access all these different brain systems. It's powerful. Another really, another really interesting part of the results was linking these particular brain results to, uh, to behavior. Um, 
And uh, do you mind if I talk about that? You know, let's do this, actually. Let's come back because I also want to get into the autism kind of side and the autism spectrum, um, which was a a part of your research. We're speaking with Dr. Daniel Arthur Abrams uh, from uh, Northwestern University about his research about what happens to a child's brain when they hear mom's voice. Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff coming up. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. If you've ever had that, uh, your mom call your name as a kid and you immediately froze, maybe went into that little, ah, I'm in trouble moment and your heart rate raced, it might be because uh, kids have a special connection with that voice. When they hear it instantly, they recognize it. And uh, there are amygdala fires in one example that we've heard, and which kind of turns in some of the you know emotional management, fight or flight needs kick in. But Dr. Uh, Daniel Arthur Abra- Abrams is talking about his research that he's performed at Northwestern University as a, an auditory cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and we're honored to have you back, Dr. Abrams. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you were talking about uh, the fact that when this when they hear mom's voice, it, it, it kind of it impacts almost an immediate behavior set. It prepares them to behave. Is that right? Well, I guess it's the way we think about it. We don't we don't know that for certain. But, you know, the way that the, the results kind of turned out, it suggests that that kids that it kind of readies kids for lots of things that may be important, such as learning um, and it kind of prepares a- accesses different brain circuits that may be important for learning and social information processing. Hmm. And so I guess when you hear mom's voice, something important is going to happen, probably, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this is maybe the brain's way of getting ready for that important information that she could be passing on to you. It, yeah, it's interesting, which, is, which would be super important for survival, right? Like yeah, connect to mom. Absolutely. Mom, mom could give you something, some, some super important information, uh, and, and you need to be ready for it, right? That's interesting. Man, I, I hope you got to go do the dad research soon because, know. you know, if we don't have that going for us, then we do need to all start listening more to mom. Absolutely. You know, we've, we've, we've had that question so many times, and, and it's actually not an immediate thing that we thought we would study, but we've, we've had so many questions about it. As soon as we kind of get sufficient funding to yeah. do it, that is something we'll definitely uh, turn our attention to. Another question has to do with um, adoptive mothers and, and other kind of caregivers huh. that, that often raise kids and uh, from a very early age, and which is another very important question. And the question there would be, is there something special about a mother who carries the child versus uh, you know a caregiver or a mother who... Um, who does not, you know, who, who adopts a child. Yeah. And so it's another kind of interesting and relevant question. And I know another thing that you did pull out of your uh, current research was um, be- about social communication, because this is about social communication. And if a child has a language and a communication, a social communication impairment, maybe like being on the autism spectrum, what, what does that do with the child? Did you get into that research? 
Well, a little bit. Um, so we, in this study that we published that we're, that we're talking about, we, we only studied uh, kids, neurotypical kids. These are kids that, are, that don't have any kind of diagnosed um, uh, uh, clinical issues such as autism or dyslexia or other kinds of uh, brain-related um, uh, clinical issues. So these are, these are your kind of generic neurotypical kids. And so, and what's interesting is that um, just like any other cognitive skill, like reading or mathematics, typical kids fall somewhere on a spectrum of normal abilities, right? You know, some yeah. kids are just kind of better readers than other kids, and, and some kids are better at math than other kids. But all of them, even when they're all kind of normal, uh, and, and this is the case. There's a spectrum. Well, this is also the case for social function. Some kids are, and when I talk about social function, I'm talking about kids' ability to relate to one another and communicate with one another, which is kind of separate from reading skills and yeah. language skills. Yeah. This is about relating and understanding each other. Um, and and so just like these other cognitive abilities, uh, normal, you know, typically developing kids fall on a continuum for social abilities. Some kids are able to relate with other kids better than others, right? And, yeah. and they, they just have these kind of natural social skills. And what we found in our results is that um, those kids that had superior social abilities showed stronger brain connectivity when hearing mother's voice. Oh, wow. And, and so it, it kind of reflects, so here's, we kind of think about it as like a neural fingerprint for uh, for in, for kind of superior social abilities. Mm-hmm. So again, it kind of these kids that that have these that, that are really social creatures, very the kind of most social creatures, have this kind of brain signature where they um, uh, for hearing important voices. Oh wow, wow, that's that could be huge. That's that's a and then another one we got to eventually figure out. And maybe you've done this is. What happens to a mom's brain when she hears her child's cry or her child talk? Yeah, actually, you know, surprisingly, this, that end of the research is much further along. Oh, is we it? Do, we haven't done this yet, but other people have studied um, parents hearing children. Yeah. Which is interesting because I feel like society is so kind of child-focused that the, the studies on the child's brain would have happened before the studies on the parents' brains, but actually it's been the other way around. Huh. That um, that these studies have been done in parents and actually uh, and, and and also in fathers. And um, and what's interesting is that basically the same set of brain regions oh, that come together light up th- th- as as in our kids. Oh my heavens! Voice. So it's like these. I mean, it's, I think what we've identified. And I don't, I don't know this for certain, but this is just my hypothesis. But what we've identified is kind of an all-purpose, um, important voice kind of pattern in yeah. our brain. Yeah, oh, interesting. Exactly. Oh, that's and fantastic. If you're a parent, if you're a parent, these things become active when you hear your kid. When you're a kid, we're, pathways um, are, turn on for when you hear your parents. Yeah, it's awesome. I think, and we're wired. It sounds like wired to to get these connections to make them happen. Well, Dr. Daniel Arthur Abrams, thank you so much for your great work. Keep it up and keep us uh, posted. We're going to take a break, friends, and come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, see what happens to our brains when we're listening to them. They always go crazy. 
We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. The great theme of our next uh, guest, Jerem Jordan, uh, is the lead in in Les Mis with Spencer Linton also on the cast. Let's go down to BYU Sports Nation, find out how they're doing. Hello, gentlemen. I didn't like Russell Crowe in Les Mis. No. I didn't think he could sing that one. Two, four, six, oh, one. That's actually the Peanuts musical when the parents are singing. (laughs) We have seriously considered doing BYU Sports Nation the musical. You should. Yep, we have. discussed it. Psych did a musical episode, didn't they? And so did Scrubs. See, Maybe I'm just thinking of scripts, yeah. you guys need to do it because um, I think I think Spencer, your muffled version, right there. Yeah, I agree. You guys, I mean, you bring so much happiness, so much joy to the world. Why not bring it in music? Hey, I agree. By the way, can I just say to you both, uh, Happy Smile Power Day. Thank you. Very nice. It's uh, the day we gain power from our smile. <laughs> you two, by the way, have two How of the most powerful. More powerful. Your your smiles are so powerful. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, what? That was live. What, what was that? It'd be sweet if that was like you had someone playing the harp. No, live. we do. Like, we have a harpist right here. Oh, you do. Her, yeah, her name is Sasha, the harpist. Hello, Sasha. From the Hello. And, uh, she's been, we've Can I make a smile sound for you? <laughs> Thank you, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> so, what uh, you guys are you gonna are you gonna watch the game or the the game? Is it tonight? Tomorrow. You, Tomorrow. What do you think? I mean. Is this over? It's got to be over soon. I need a life. I've got to get back to Netflix. I've got to start writing letters to people that I haven't seen for years. And I'm, I am I can't do it while the games are on. Tomorrow's a fun night, though. I know. Enjoy. But the NBA Finals start at uh, 9 Eastern and then uh, USA-Ecuador at 9.30 Eastern. It's stressing me out. Um, did you guys you, – I'm sure you didn't happen to hear our last interview, did you? We did not, sorry. It's, uh, we, we were talking about when you hear your mother's voice, what happens to your brain? And I wanted to ask you guys, what happens to your brain when you hear your mother's voice? I have no idea. It's like, let's say you're doing something you shouldn't be. Mm. And the next thing you know, the door opens and your mom's like, Jerem? <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what happens? you automatically want to stop doing that thing because you don't want to disappoint your mother. Yeah. Do you do you get um, chills? Do you get a sick stomach? Do you... Yeah, the pit in the stomach. Yeah, the fear. pit. The, the pit, pit fear. The stomach. Yeah. Which is weird because moms are known for love. Right? So why well, the pit? It's the thought of disappointing my mom. Yeah. 
Would 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 I do this if my mom were standing right here? You know, I, would I just keep eating Cheetos? That if, thought has saved many a man. Absolutely. Bad decisions. Well, you got Cheetos, you do your thing. You know, it's Cheetos. They're Cheetos. <laughs> you just you just do your thing. Yeah. You don't you don't let anyone stop you from eating Cheetos, right? What, what if you're sitting there singing Les Mis? Two, four, six, oh, one. <laughs> and let Jeremy, let's I'm, say, let's I'm say, I'm a better singer than Russell Crowe. Let's say it's not your mom that walks in because she yeah, thinks that's great. Saying a lot. Let's, you do kind of sound like Mike Wazowski. <laughs> Wazowski. <laughs> can, can you do? Can you do Lay Miz as Mike Sally? Wazowski? <laughs> do do Lay Miz as Mike Wazowski? <laughs> no. Can you just try it? You just want to try it? I mean, you, you got to give it a try, right? I don't have the Wazowski voice yeah. down. If I did, I would do it. You know I would do you it. You and me, <laughs> oh, me yeah. and you. Can, can, yeah, he's got like a together. frog voice thing going on. Spence, can you do it as Bane? Two, four, six, oh, one. Open it up a little bit. It's too quiet in there. It's like, like really quiet. Open it up just a bit. Two, four, six, oh, one. Yeah. And then he's singing like Brandon Flowers. <laughs> it was only a kiss. <laughs> See? Oh, I love it. I want to sing everything like Brandon Flowers. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's Because they won't let you do that on your show. Why don't you guys do the musical on my show? Ooh. No, no, BYU Sports Nation, the musical, the eight-minute musical yeah. on the Matt the Townsend show. Yeah, and we'll just we'll just piece it out, and then I'll, we'll put it all together, and then we can sell it, you know, on, as a vinyl. Okay. <laughs> to those crush people. with the hipsters in Provo. I'm serious. Okay, that's what we'll do. I'll have my people organize your people. Solid. And then don't tell anybody, but you'll just do it for eight minutes at a time. <laughs> okay, I got to let – okay, what, what's on your show? Because you guys got to get back to your – you know, the money-making show. It's all about the fashionistas today. Ooh, why? Because we're talking uniforms for BYU football. Oh, boy. They just announced they're wearing the black uniforms for the Utah State game. Yeah. Final game of the year. Ooh, yeah. cool. Black uniforms, black Blackout. for the first time since uh, November of 2014. Back in so black. So a one-year hiatus. And we are now asking for innovation from all of BYU Sports Nation. Yes. Meaning if you could contribute an alternate uniform to the already established arsenal, what would it be? Paisley. Paisley. There are no Paisley outfits. Outfits. <laughs> There's a good reason for that, too. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just Paisley. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Just a throwback. A little 70s. Paisley? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. But, like, I want the shirt to be really satiny, like yeah, a satiny. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word, but okay. That's a good topic. What Michael McGuire, 1996 uh, wide receiver, for BYU football, first team in college football history to win 14 games. He will join us. Uh, in two weeks uh, from tomorrow is BYU Football Media Day. That team will be featured as well. Squally Canada, expected to be a significant contributor on uh, in the rushing game. Mm. Running back. And then uh, who else is on the show? I can't remember. Is Another it? Olympic swimmer. Yeah. Another oh, guy cool. going for the Olympics. Preston Jenkins. Jenkins. Preston yep. Jenkins. Preston Jenkins. That's good. This That's is good. like our... 15th swimmer that we've had on the show in the past two Minus weeks. 12. But there, yeah, there have been a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of swimming. It's sw- BYU Swimming Nation. We're rebranding the show. That is, plus, do, do, when they walk in, do you smell chlorine? We talked about that yesterday. We said, yeah, that, is, there, is, there a, is there a cologne that covers chlorine? <laughs> and the answer was no. It, what about a lot of Axe? 
Axe. A lot of body spray. Yeah. Might work. Okay. Oh, yeah, baby. Hey, okay. It sounds like a great show. Knock them dead, and then we'll start working on the musical. We shall do that. Excellent. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a great one. Four, six, oh, two. Goodbye, Matthew. (laughs) Thanks, Bane. Thanks, uh, Les Mis. This is great. Good stuff. Jean Valjean. Was that Jean Valjean? Who sings that? Okay. Good stuff. Well, so... Um, Javert sings it in like the... Yeah, Javert, because he's the cop, uh, yeah, that... And then Jean Valjean, that's his number, and so he sings it a, a little while later as well. Wow, look at you. I didn't know you were so into the show tunes. I, I have some culture. Some is the operative word there. I was just being modest. Yes. Okay, uh, we always like to do a little segment called the Coaching the Con segment. Bad boys, bad boys. Let me tell you what you do when they come for you, um, uh, Prolancia Aquila Turner, if you're, if you're listening. When somebody comes to arrest you for stealing items from a jeweler in Florida in a Florida mall, um, don't use this excuse. Okay, so what she did is she stole earrings valued at about $12.50 and put them in the waistband of her pants. And instead of crying and, and being, you know, angry about uh, the fact that she was, you know, she was caught, this is what she did. She, she got miffed and she told the police, everyone steals from this store. Why are you picking on me? Oh, come on. So, you know, when, when, when a cop is when you say that to a cop, they think one thing. Taste it. You, you can't use the excuse everyone steals from this store, so why are you picking on me? You got to come up with something different. Like, whoa, it slipped. It just fell there. It fell in the waistband of my pants. My waistband? I find the weirdest things in the waistband of my pants. Just stuff like that. Come on. Don't be a dumb criminal. And sadly, uh, another story for you, a dog uh, fell out of a truck onto a California highway, freeway. It eluded capture for five weeks. Here's a video. This dog just keeps running in and out of uh, these, the bushes along the median. And, you know, cops, would they'd, they'd send someone to go try to find it. The dog would elude those people. For five weeks, they were chasing the, this pooch. And eventually, um, you know, they'd leave it alone. It would disappear. They'd, it would come back. Finally, they found the dog. The dog uh, they, they named Frida. It's a German shepherd. Uh, how do we say Frida in German, Ben? Frida. <laughs> sure we do. And uh, the dog was 44 pounds, which is underweight, but uh, had a broken hip, sadly. But she's now in the trusting care of the authorities there. They're giving her some love. And I'm sure some uh, some good dog food. She'll be fine. She will be fine. Hey, uh, we got to end the show. We always talk about a hero story. The hero comes out of the Pulse Orlando Club where the mass shooting took place, 49 dead. And the hero uh, of, of the club, Joshua McGill with his roommates, were at the Pulse, which was a, a club when they heard the gunshots around 2 a.m. 
McGill said on Good Morning America that he uh, hopped a fence to escape the gunfire that ultimately killed 49 people in the club. He then hid behind a car in the parking lot for safety. While hiding, McGill saw a victim limping around and mumbling. He would later learn that the victim was Rodney Sumter, a 27-year-old bartender at Pulse. I went and I grabbed him. I brought him behind the car where I was, McGill said. And that's when I noticed he'd been shot in one arm. He said, I took my shirt off, tied it around his uh, his gunshot wound on his left arm, and basically used it to stop the bleeding, and he saved this guy's life. He would have bled out otherwise, apparently. He said, I just applied as much pressure as I could as we were walking him to the nearest officer that was on standby. With no ambulances on the scene yet, he just stood by him, took care of him, and stopped him from bleeding, and he saved the guy's life. So... Uh, you are the hero of the day, Joshua McGill, and everybody that was a part of uh, getting the people through that uh, terrible tragedy. Folks, that's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. Until tomorrow, take care of each other and make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.